I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals Yeah! I need you to like musicals! Ladies and gentlemen Need you to like musicals! The moment you've been waiting for Need you to like musicals! The only musical anyone really cares about Need you to like musicals! It's Hamilton! Alright, welcome everybody Do I need you to like musicals? The season finale event. I'm recording this on New Year's Eve Eve. Saturday, December 30th. A new year is upon us. I don't know about you, audience, but I'm going through some massive life changes. Can't wait to see what 2024 brings. Do you have all your New Year's resolutions ready? I don't usually go very hard with New Year's resolutions. Um... I did once, one time, I had a successful New Year's resolution. That was in 2012, 2011 into 2012, I successfully quit smoking cigarettes as a result of a New Year's resolution. Couldn't believe I actually did it. Uh, and I'll take this opportunity to make my suggestion to anyone out there considering quitting smoking. First of all, you should. But second of all, uh, here is a method for quitting smoking that people don't talk about very often. I'm not sure it works for everybody. It worked for me. I think it works for a very specific type of smoker. I think I was the type of smoker of cigarettes who didn't actually like it or didn't like the actual tobacco experience. Are you the kind of smoker who uh, puts off his first smoke of the day until the sun, when the sun is going down because you know it's going to make you feel awful? But then once you have that first one, you smoke about a, a pack and a half throughout the evening. And maybe you're just a little bit more addicted to the back and forth of cigarette to mouth via your hand. Here's what you should do. Go to the tobacco shop and get yourself herbal cigarettes. The kind that they use on stage and in films. They're full of uh, rose hips and catnip. I think Ecstasy brand cigarettes is the one that I went with. Um, now, it's not going to be pleasant. First of all, you're going to smell terrible, and no one's going to want to be around you for a while. But what it does is it takes care of the habit, of the, the before-dinner, after-dinner habit of it all, of the before-bed, of the stepping outside. It's a weaning. And there's something that doesn't quite deliver the way the cigarette does. But it's a little half-measure area for you to live in uh, for the first month. And then uh, you can look forward to all sorts of horrid things coming up from your lungs and getting real sick. Anyway, uh, do that. Quit smoking. 2024. Now is as good a time as any. Quit vaping, too, you weirdos. Gen Z weirdos with your vapes. No one likes to be around that. You look like a fucking cloud. <sighs> By the way, the, the year after that, I tried to become a vegetarian. I had this whole thing. I was like, every year, I'm going to fix something uh, enormous in my life. First, no more smoking. Next, no more meat. That lasted about three months, where I felt vaguely ill the whole time and dizzy. 
and then uh, I had some meat. Uh, th this is a long preamble. I think it's time that we should get into what we're actually talking about, which is not my vegetarianism or lack thereof. We're here to talk about just one musical today because it would be ridiculous to pair this with anything else, because it's really unlike anything else. I thought it would make sense to close out my first year as a small-time musical theater podcaster by finally addressing the elephant in the room. That's right, folks. Welcome to the Hamilton episode. Now, the first thing I want to say, there's very little wrong with Hamilton as a piece of American musical theater. I am... Uh, predisposed to be contrarian and most of the things that American culture at large values are not things that I value it's not because I'm so fucking smart and interesting it's I don't do it on purpose I would love to be a person that l liked all the music that came out of the radio or liked all of the TV shows that uh, were on network uh, channels <laughs> Does anybody watch those anymore? I guess old people do. Anyway, uh, it's just... Hamilton is simply the best musical that has come along during my lifetime. Or at least my adult life. Because I was, of course, a toddler when things like Into the Woods were happening. Uh, any criticism that I might have, uh, that I might make here of Hamilton in this episode, admittedly, they are nitpicking criticisms. And I only make them because I love Hamilton... And I hold Hamilton in such high regard and to such a high standard. And I was hesitant to even deal with the show because it's really good. And uh, nearly everybody agrees it's really good. And I have very little to add to the conversation about what's good about Hamilton. You know that Hamilton is good because you've heard it or possibly seen it. In fact, I really only have one significant complaint about it that's not nitpicking, and that complaint has to do with the ending. The finale of Hamilton, the way that it ends. That's what they call a teaser, ladies and gentlemen. Stay tuned. Listen to this whole episode to find out Chris's problem with the end of Hamilton. Who cares? Let's talk about Lin-Manuel Miranda. The genius behind Hamilton, and I don't use the term genius lightly. I don't. But I do believe that this man is a genius when it comes to writing for the theater. A uh, Sondheim-level genius. Of course, he's much younger. He's got a much shorter uh, work history than the late Stephen Sondheim has. Had. Has. Ha uh, hey, I accidentally quoted Sondheim. Uh, what's that from? Had. Sorry, had, had, has, three, two, one, wrong, Mrs. Lovett, Sweeney Todd. There's an episode of Siskel and Ebert from 1995. It was a special episode of Siskel and Ebert. Uh, if you don't know, Siskel and Ebert was a wonderful television show from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And a little bit into the 2000s after Siskel died, uh, where they would review films. It would be two guys that didn't like each other very much arguing about films. They did a special episode in 95 uh, called The Tarantino Generation. They devoted the entire episode to praising the work of Quentin Tarantino. And they had these little segments where they talked about their uh, initial review of Reservoir Dogs and they talked about Pulp Fiction, which had just come out. In the last segment of the episode, they, uh, they devote that to giving Quentin Tarantino what they call uh, unrequested advice. And both of them say to Quentin Tarantino, you are spreading yourself too thin. Uh, quote, slow down and take care of business. In your case, 
business should be writing and directing movies. So they basically wanted him to stop being uh, this talk show personality. I think that Lin-Manuel Miranda could benefit from similar advice. Uh, some of this has already happened. You know, I think that he has stopped trying to be an actor, or maybe like Hollywood has stopped trying to make him happen as an actor. It's not gonna fly, baby. You know, he did Mary Poppins reboot, he did His Dark Materials. He, look, you just don't have it, Lin. The, sc the screen is not your friend, and that's okay, because there are things that you are good at. Also, enough fucking Disney movies. I have great respect, by the way, for the institution of the, of the animated Disney musical. I don't think that I would give a shit about musical theater today had I not been ensnared by The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast when I was a child. When Broadway was uh, not producing anything of value, Disney movies took up the slack, picked up the slack. But Lin-Manuel Miranda, we need you to get back to the stage. I think Moana is great. Uh, Encanto is fine. Uh, some people love Encanto. I think it's fine. The songs and all these are great. It's just, uh, you know, get back to the stage. We need you. And we need you to stop working for Disney. Great news, by the way. It was reported this August that Lin-Manuel Miranda is doing just that. He is working on a stage musical adaptation of The Warriors, uh, a 1960s street gang novel. Sort of like uh, The Outsiders is of, uh, of that uh, ilk, except the story revolves around Puerto Rican gangs. So he's making a musical of that. And by God, I can only hope that that story includes a racist police chief so that your boy can get a part in this thing. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, based on Lin-Manuel Miranda's public persona alone, I do not want to like him. And when I was first getting into Hamilton and uh, noticed the strength of his writing, I was surprised by how he came off in interviews. The fact that he was so bubbly and irritating. <laughs> because, um, this probably says more about me, but I assumed hearing Hamilton and some of his other work that he must be this dark, brooding tyrant who throws things at you if you try to look at him square in the eye. Just because of how uh, amazing these works were. And that he's the one that wrote book, music, and lyrics, and performed in the lead role of the fucking thing. And I think that that's uh, an important lesson, by the way, uh, that you don't need to be a tyrant to make really good things. Uh, it, uh, but, you know, sometimes the things do overlap. Anyway, um, I first became familiar with the work of Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, after he had already hit the scene. I have a period of my life, I think, in the 2000s where I kind of walked away from theater and musical theater. I was trying to be a singer-songwriter, and uh, yeah. So In the Heights, of course, happens on Broadway in 2008, and it kind of passes me by. And I'm newly sober, I'm trying to write sad white guy songs, and I play keyboard in way too many bands. I'm spread too thin. But a friend of a friend at one point, uh, somebody I had never met, but uh, I was referred by a friend. There was a guy that wanted to pay me money to help him prepare for an audition. He's a Latino gentleman, and the audition that he's doing is for the touring company of In the Heights, and the role is Usnavi. So he emails me a cut from the title song, In the Heights, and a cut from It Won't Be Long Now, 
which is Vanessa's song, but it's the part in the middle with the guys where they're like, Vanessa! It doesn't really sound like that. And so I'm going through this music, and I'm like, okay, this is stupid. It's a musical with rapping. And it reminds me of that sketch in Mr. Show with Bob and David, where they do rap the musical. Um, I won't uh, explain it to you now. Go, go look that up. It's very funny. So I do that. I don't think too much about it. Uh, in the fall of 2011, I'm hanging out with my friend Sam, and he just says, here, do you want this? He hands me two tickets to something called Bring It On The Musical. That's at the Amundsen, which if you're not from Los Angeles, that's the big theater here where all the touring shows come to. It's at the what we call the Music Center in downtown Los Angeles with the Mark Taper Forum, which is now closed, uh, at least temporarily, and the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion where LA Opera does all their shit. And where I actually had my high school graduation, believe it or not. Um, so I'm familiar, sort of, with the movie Bring It On. I think that I got it from Blockbuster at some point <laughs> with my sisters, or little sister probably. And obviously, I'm not the target demographic for Bring It On, but I'm like, hey, fuck it, it's free, and it's at the Amundsen. Well, let's go see it. I see it with my friend Josh, by the way, who's also who's also not really a, a musical theater guy and probably also not predisposed to like Bring It On, a uh, musical or the movie. The first 20 minutes of Bring It On, the musical, are pretty much what you'd expect. Then out of fucking nowhere, there's this big musical number called Welcome to Jackson, where the heroine uh, changes schools from a sort of a hoity-toity school uh, to this uh, sort of tough public high school. And at the time, that song specifically struck me as really like incredibly fresh and a portrayal of a public high school that's never really been attempted on a Broadway stage. And really the whole show overall is surprisingly good. And I spend the next few years telling everybody, hey, you know what's actually really good? Bring it on the musical. <laughs> I never would have gone to see it. I had no idea it existed um, until I got those free tickets. Years later, uh, and I, by the way, and I, and I maybe I, I don't make the connection between Tom Kitt and Next to Normal and Lin Manuel Miranda and In the Heights at the time. Like now, I know both of those guys and their work, and I think they're both great. But at the time, I didn't really think twice about it because I just figured, yeah, I don't know about musicals anymore. Years later, uh, after decades of refusing to listen to This American Life for whatever dumb reason, I end up hearing an episode of it, and I become a rabid fan, and I make my way through the archives of This American Life. I'm going backwards in time from whenever that was, let's say early 2015. I hear a live episode from 2014, and the first act is some dumb shit where a woman tells the story about getting locked in a hotel closet, and they turn that into an opera. And that's the conceit of that episode, is they're doing big, like, opera and musical theater versions of their stories. Haha, ha, okay, whatever. Then they get to uh, act two. Uh, uh, act two, This American Life. Uh, Mickey Meek. Hannah Joffrey Walls. Uh, it's called 21 Chump Street. And what they've done is they've gotten, uh, they've, they're doing a musical theater version of one of their older stories. If you're not familiar, 21 Chum Street is a story they did a few years prior about a kid in high school that got a crush on this girl that was like a new transfer, but then that girl turned up, uh, ended up being a uh, undercover cop, and they were trying to bust them for drugs. This kid was not a drug dealer or a drug addict of any kind, but he like just had a real crush on her, and she entrapped him into getting her some weed, and then he got arrested and got his life ruined. And he'd been like the straight-A student headed for college, and then now he couldn't because he was all fucked up. Uh, and, it, and it was like a very outrageous story. And so I'm listening to this, just, you know, the audio of it, of this live performance of it. And at first I find it irritating. 
Because they got that whole song. What the heck I gotta do to be with you? What the heck I gotta do? What the heck I gotta do to be with you? And that's Anthony Ramos, of course, who's going to come up uh, later when we talk about Hamilton. About a third of the way through this, I start to notice not only are this, I, I don't just notice the quality of the songs themselves, because they are good, but the artfulness of the storytelling and the way that it's paced. And I think this is where Lin-Manuel Miranda shines. I think what makes his brand of musical theater unique is the way that he takes characters and melodies and lyrics and crafts them together into, you know, a Bernsteinian Cena. Haven't seen the Bernstein movie yet, by the way. And um, so he's not just a uniquely talented lyricist. He's not just a really good melodist that makes these very catchy melodies, but just he aggregates all these elements from different genres like pop and rap and musical theater itself, and he ties them together with a sense of pacing and storytelling that is completely his own. You, you know exactly what you're listening to when you hear... Like, there's a lot of imitators since then, but, you know, the, the era up until Hamilton, you know, you, you know Lin-Manuel Miranda when you hear it. And I think that this storytelling element, uh, the theatricality of it, is what I really miss from his work since Hamilton. Uh, anyway, I first heard about Hamilton on a podcast, uh, not a... Shishi NPR podcast, but a different, like a comedy podcast. I actually, I think Anthony Rapp was a guest on a podcast and he mentioned it. And it made me curious enough to look it up because I was like, I realized I was a newly minted fan of Lin Manuel Miranda. I see that the original cast recording of this new Hamilton musical is all on Spotify. Now, I'm a reasonably educated person, as you know, I did go through the Los Angeles Unified School District, which is not the best, but I know about the Revolutionary War, and I know what the Federalist Papers are, and I know about the Jefferson-Hamilton rivalry during the Washington presidency and the cabinet. So I already kind of know the story. I put the album on during my long commute home from work, uh, from Culver City to South Pasadena, which was this horrific thing I did twice a day for many years. And by the time I'm home, uh, I've gotten all the way to Guns and Ships. That'll tell you how long my fucking commute is. That's not that long, actually. Well, maybe I did it for the second half of the trip. I don't know. And um, I'm loving it, obviously, because it's so good. <laughs> and then I do a little research before I listen to the second half of it, which I listen to in, during my morning commute the next day. And I sort of... And I would recommend, as far as entry points go... Uh, it's probably the best original cast recording ever made. And I know that that's a bold statement. It's true. It's it's an original cast recording that tells the story, which it's supposed like they're supposed to really do. <laughs> um, and it is a sung through or wrapped through and sung through musical. So you can do that. I would recommend if you're going to do that, um, do what I did during the second half of my listen which is just read the synopsis of the musical. You don't have to read the whole goddamn life and times of Alexander Hamilton. Just go on Wikipedia, read the synopsis of Hamilton. I can't imagine anyone's listening to this that doesn't know what Hamilton is or hasn't heard all of Hamilton or seen Hamilton. Whatever, man. Uh, on the off chance there is someone, or if you want to recommend it to a family member, this is how they should do it. Maybe don't watch the Disney goddamn filmed play version and I'll talk about why later. Uh, as I'm listening to this thing, I mean, I listened to the whole thing, and then I basically just started it right over from the start again. And just had it on a loop for that entire year. I found myself transported back to high school, 
because this is what I used to do. I used to listen to these OCRs, original cast recordings. And, you know, do the whole thing as one character and do the whole thing as another character. Now I'm doing this driving as an adult with Hamilton. And it's like, wow, I haven't done this in so long. And I think that Hamilton kind of changed my life. It made me interested in theater again. And uh, this is a weird uh, thing to pair it with. But along with Louis C.K.'s Horace and Pete, it's what made me want to start writing. Up until that point, I'd been writing very casually. But up when Hamilton came out, it made me want to write musicals and it made me want to like treat it like a job. Uh, because I saw that that kind of excellence was possible. And I think it made me a better songwriter, for sure. Because it's so good, it's so good. <laughs> Hamilton is good. That's the title of this episode, probably. Um, I, I, I feel like there's going to be less underscoring in this episode because I'm so pressed for time here. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to add underscoring before I have to go start my shift at the restaurant. But here are my notes while watching it. Uh, so you got the opening number and there's a history behind that. Uh, he, Lin-Manuel Miranda was going on a trip with his wife on vacation and he quickly picked up a copy of the of Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow, which is the kind of book that, you know, serious men read. <laughs> you ever, have, you know, go to a very serious man's house, he's got a bookshelf full of books about presidents that are very thick and very serious. And so he read that book and he had the idea to write a musical about it. Whatever. I'm not going to get too much into the history of it. But then he, at the White House... I forget what event it was at the White House, but in front of uh, Barack and Michelle and all everybody, he debuted this opening number, Alexander Hamilton, with the snaps. He had all the whole audience snap. And they laughed when he said he was writing a musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton. And then he said, you laugh, but it's true. And little did they know he would make history. And um, the cool thing about this opening number is it introduces Aaron Burr, of course, as our narrator, and if you are a millennial, and I believe that Lin-Manuel is one, he's in the elder millennial category with me, he was born in 1980, 1981, I don't know. But um, when, when Burr says, and me, I'm the damn fool that shot him, you know, us millennials know very well who shot Alexander Hamilton because of the Got Milk commercial, the most memorable commercial of the 1990s. Where, if you don't know, if you're in a generation before or after this, or, you know, you weren't watching as much television as I was in the 90s, uh, th this thing aired constantly. Uh, and these Got Milk commercials. And this was the most memorable one of those already memorable series of ads. And the whole thing was it's a guy in a library. I guess he was a librarian. And he's listening to some radio show. Uh, and he's eating a sandwich or cookies. I forget what he's eating. I guess it wasn't that memorable. Um, and they say, oh, uh, call in now to answer this question. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? And he looks up at a painting or a statue <laughs> in, the, in the library that says, this is Aaron Burr shooting Alexander Hamilton. So we know that he knows the answer. And then the radio show, he's on the phone with them. And he goes, Aaron Burr. They're like, what? Aaron Burr. Uh, hold on. Let me get some milk. He's, his mouth is full with whatever the fuck he's eating. But he's like, oh, man, my milk is empty. Because uh, apparently the only way to get food out of your mouth is to drink milk. Um, and so he runs out of time because he doesn't have milk. 
because he's just saying, I'm burr, I'm burr. They can't, I'm sorry. And if you're watching this, uh, it's you're on the edge of your seat. You're yelling at this guy, spit it out. Just spit it out, dude. You know the answer. <laughs> so uh, that's the only pre-knowledge you really need to enjoy this show, is that Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton. One thing that I uh, realized when I finally saw this show, of course I saw clips of it, and I, just like everybody else, got obsessed with watching bootlegs of the Broadway show on YouTube, which the team of Hamilton was uh, very vigilant about getting rid of the minute that they landed. You, It was very hard to find bootlegs for that first year. But the look of the show, of Hamilton, um, one thing, and this is just my opinion, and I could be wrong about this, I wish that Hamilton had big, expensive sets. Because they don't. Uh, they do the thing that a lot of modern contemporary musical theater does, where it's bare-bones sort of warehouse-looking thing with uh, wooden chairs. The costumes are pretty extravagant, but the sets are not. And it's like, this is such a huge epic and such a big seismic musical seismic musical uh, that costs so fucking much money to see. I feel like it deserves like sets flying on and off of these big, uh, you know, fucking palaces and uh, battlefields and everything. Like, the only reason to really do that uh, presentational style is if you're in a goddamn 99-seat theater. And I like that. You know, I got no problem with that. I just feel like they should have saved that for the Hamilton revivals later. Uh, the pared-down revivals. The original Hamilton, I feel like I really want uh, expensive sets. That's what I think. That's how I feel about it. Um, and I think in general, um, as, as wonderful as Hamilton is, I think that the writing is where this thing lives and the concept is, you know, the dancing is fine. Everything's fine. Uh, but, uh, I, I had a whole movie running in my head of what Hamilton was supposed to be like, and it did not measure up, uh, and it couldn't have possibly measured up, uh, when I saw it on stage. Uh, after the opening number, it gets into, pardon me, are you Aaron Burr, sir? And this begs the question, um, is Hamilton autistic? He seems a little autistic. There are kind of two versions of Hamilton in this. I mean, two characteristics of Hamilton, where on the one hand, he's this singular-minded, socially inept guy that just uh, works his ass off and says uh, inappropriate things and can't pick up on social cues. But then there is like Hamilton as Lothario, where he keeps uh, all these women want to fuck him and he's uh, the big man on campus. And uh, so, yeah, both of those things are going on at the same time. I mean, it's not really a problem, but I mean, in this song especially, like with the You Punch the Burser. Yes, I wanted to do like it. It seems like uh, the his inability to make a good impression and to be so weird, uh, the way that he's so weird in this conversation, it, he seems on the spectrum. They didn't know what that was yet, right? In seventeen seventy six, um, this has been talked to death by Lin Manuel Miranda and people talking about this show. Uh, the introduction of the characters and the way that they do those uh, very simple raps to introduce themselves i'm john lawrence in the place to be i'm gonna do my best to not uh, rap in this episode because i don't know how to and i'll sound like an idiot uh but th the that was intentionally simple because the idea is that these guys are doing that thing that you do with your buddies in high school when you're into rapping where you're like 
I'm Chris Kerrigan, and I'm here to say I like to podcast in a funky way. And then Hamilton comes in, and he's got these very complex uh, internal rhymes and uh, polyrhythms going on. So that's the point of that, which happens in My Shot, which is the next song, and probably, maybe, the best song in the show. And I, I'm i disappointed that he kind of just stands there for the whole first part of it, because it's so, like, the soaring, the, in, the orchestration and the writing of it is so um, exciting. It bothers me that he just stands there. But, yeah, that song apparently it took him forever, like, over a year to write this one fucking song. And, uh, I mean, I just like every goddamn inch of it. It's great. It's a great song. It's long, but uh, it never gets boring. <laughs> and all the other guys have their little sections in it. Lafayette uh, does his thing. I wonder if uh, David Diggs, who plays Lafayette and Jefferson, if like maybe he was so bad at doing a French accent that they tried to they decided to lean into that and said like, oh, the whole thing is you know it's funny because it's a guy doing a bad French accent. <laughs> um, a lot of people thought that was the case with Julianne Moore on Thirty Rock when she did the Boston accent. They thought that maybe her accent was so bad that they just pretended it was bad on purpose. Uh, yeah. The, thing, the funny thing about Lafayette in real life, the real history of him, is that he's a French man who's hot shit in American history. We name cities and boulevards after him. But the French do not hold him in such high regard. He is not a hero, really, in France. Or at least he wasn't directly after his death. And that's probably because their revolution was a lot messier and shittier than ours. Or at least that's how history sees it. History sees the American Revolution as this rags-to-riches story of glory. And the French Revolution as uh, the reign of terror situation. The French historians called him, quote, an empty-headed political dwarf, Lafayette. Uh, Hercules Mulligan, up in it, loving it. Uh, he was an Irishman. An Irishman, heard of Hercules Mulligan. He also went to King's College, uh, but I guess he didn't amaze and astonish. He didn't meet Hamilton right after Hamilton moved to New York, and the reason he met him is because Hamilton was renting a room from his brother, from the other Mulligan. Hercules was already in the Sons of Liberty, which was uh, Samuel Adams's outfit. It was the whole secret organization that did a bunch of violent uh, colonial shit. And Mulligan's whole deal was that he was the spy. And, of course, they mention this. Uh, he was a tailor, tailor spying on the British government. And he would listen to them while he was measuring their for their clothes, and he would go tell everybody, tell, her, tell the colonial army about it. And he was indeed suggested uh, to, to Washington by his buddy Hamilton, just like in his show. He, uh, and he had a slave, by the way, these, this big manumission, this uh, manumissionist, this uh, abolitionist manumissionist uh, anti-slavery, but he had himself a slave named Cato that helped him do all this, uh, you know. And I wondered if that was, was the name Cato, was that, is, is this Cato the inspiration for the Cato and Pink Panther? And for Cato Kalin? Probably not, because that's a real guy with a real name. Anyway, uh, Hercules Mulligan's whole thing was that he, he was good at slinging the old Blarney. He would look good at uh, being a bullshit artist, which is the Irish claim to, that along with drinking is our claim to fame as Irish people. We are Blarney. And he saved Washington's life twice by uh, sweet-talking the British and listening to their plots. And, yeah, John Lawrence uh, in this play is the big abolitionist. He has one of the best lines in my shot where uh, he says, 
Wait till I sally in on a stallion with the first black battalion. He had a whole plan that he was going to recruit 3,000 slaves to fight on the side of the colonialists in exchange for their freedom, which if you think about it in today, like that does not sound very progressive. <laughs> you have to fight in our war and then you could be free. Uh, but maybe back then it was because everybody was always on the razor's edge of life and death all the time. So if you didn't die in the war, you'd probably just get eaten by a fucking wolf. Anyway, the congressional hillbillies from South Carolina made sure that this didn't happen, this whole idea of recruiting slaves to fight. He tried it every couple of years. It kept getting shot down. Um, there's a bunch of, I know that there's a lot of references to classic rap songs that uh, I, a lot of them I didn't know until later, and I'll mention them as they come up. The ones that I know, there are probably others that I don't know. But there's also a lot of references to musical theater history, and this is the first one. You've got to be carefully taught. If you talk, you're going to get shot. What's that from, everybody? Three, two, one. That's right, South Pacific. And one of the most uh, impressive before-its-time songs of the golden era of musical theater an anti-racist song from South Pacific called You've Got to Be Taught Before It's Too Late Before You Are Six or Seven or Eight To Hate All The People Your Relatives Hate You've Got To Be Carefully Taught That's a big deal, man, saying that in the 40s. Um, I'm not going to make an obvious point here. Well, I guess I am, but I'm going to bring up the, the obvious point that I'm not making is that uh, the whole rise up vibe of this revolution uh, doesn't really jibe with the truth of it's really just about land owning white men who don't want to pay more taxes on their tea. You know, it's fine. Like that doesn't matter really because it's about the storytelling. It's not about being historically accurate and it's they're doing a thing, right? They're taking the this old American idea of revolution and giving it a sort of revolutionary contemporary weight. And that's fine. We don't need to spend that much time uh, tearing down the statues of these founding fathers, even though they were pricks. We can agree that they were pricks, and we don't need to fact check everything that says they weren't. Lin-Manuel's performance, um, and this is a big sticking point. I think when you watch the show, this is the number one reason, by the way, not to watch it on Disney Plus, which you all already have. So this is falling on deaf ears. It's too late. Um, the Disney, the the filmed play version that they released on Disney Plus in 2020 reveals that Lin Manuel Miranda is not a very good performer, and this especially comes uh, across in the times when he's supposed to get choked up. Um, like, do you relish being a poor man's wife? And then all through, it's quiet uptown. And it's a shame. It doesn't bother me in the OCR, the original cast recording. Why do I bother saying OCR if I'm going to then follow that up by clarifying that I'm saying original cast recording and then take time to say that? Um, so what was I saying there before? Oh, Jesus. Here's the thing. In this original cast recording, that is like his domain because it is just about the score and the writing of the score. And the fact that he is, you know, he can carry a tune, but he's not like his voice has a sort of shaky weakness to it. And I think that they did some work on it in certain points, like on the just you wait. Um, he probably sang it just as shittily as I just did. And then they did a bit of a tune up and a beefing up in post production on it. But it's OK because he wrote it. 
And it's just, it, it has that singer-songwriter quality to it, where it's like, yeah, you're allowed to sing it any way you want because you fucking wrote it. But then that doesn't really work for the acting of it. And when you see him acting, you wish that somebody else were playing the role. Which, of course, other people do now, because he can't do that forever. And uh, this is controversial. People disagree with this. But that's okay. You know, that's, uh, that's hey, this is all about the, 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 our American freedom. <laughs> and we all have the American freedom to disagree. I did imagine them doing shots at the end of my shot. And uh, because it does seem like they're, maybe this is just in my head, it does seem like they're making a light uh, reference to that song, Shots, 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 when they're all singing in counterpoint. But time to take a shot, take a shot, shot, take a shot. <laughs> um, I, I, in my head, in that song, they were doing shots of alcohol. Not the case on stage. They're just doing choreography. Skylar Sisters is an excellent song. People, uh, Love this. This is well documented. Um, people seem to remember and quote like the weakest lines from Hamilton, though. Like everybody, they, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's the one that everybody always remembers from the Schuyler sister. But there's so many better, you know, like the following line of that, of course. And then um, when Burr says, uh, 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 yeah, ah, so you disgust me. I'm a trust fund, baby. You can trust me. That's 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 a great line. Great line. There's going to be very little engagement with the lyrics police in this episode. There's going to be a lot of cases of what I just did, of me saying, boy, do I love that line. Because I am pro-Hamilton. The musical, not the man. Yeah, so Burr also, Burr and Hamilton, they, they make it very clear that they're like these Lotharios, right? That they, they get all these ladies. And I guess because you died so young in those days, uh, because the only thing that they knew how to do at the, at the hospital was bloodletting, that, you know, you really had to pack in a lot into your short life. You had to pack in a lot of uh, history making and a lot of lady fucking. So Burr and Hamilton, even though they seem like they are annoying to spend time with, <laughs> they got a lot of ladies. But, you know, I guess you just bought them in those days <laughs> from their father. I don't know. I don't know, guys. I don't know what my point is or why it's. I felt it was necessary to talk about that. In uh, the Heed Not the Rabble, the Zoom Revolution. Uh, I love it. That's another case. So everybody remembers My Dog Speaks More Eloquently, which is a reference to what Hamilton actually said in his written rebuttal to Samuel Seabury. But my favorite line in this is, Don't modulate the key, then not debate with me. That's great. I hope to find a reason to say that to people in my life if I get a chance. Um, I still haven't, by the way, for uh, longtime listeners who heard the My Fair Lady episode, I still have not had the opportunity to tell somebody that they are an owl sickened by a few days of my sunshine. So I'm going to try to do that in 2024. That's my New Year's resolution. And then if I'm in an argument with someone, I will say, don't modulate the key, then not debate with me. It gets into the song, You'll Be Back, a uh, beloved song. It's a pastiche song, um, and I really the whole show is full of pastiche songs. It's, he's doing this purposely. And I think actually that's another way that his likening him to Tarantino is apt, because Tarantino really constructs these films that are wholly original, but they are made up of references to other works. 
And Hamilton is like that. It's, of course, you know, Washington is, is supposed to be based on these old school rappers. And then, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mulligan is supposed to be like Buster Rhymes and uh, who I've uh, heard of. <laughs> and then Aaron Burr is like, you know, a Salieri figure. So there you go. Uh, so, but um, what was I going to say about that? Yeah, You'll Be Back is a British invasion pop song. And I just, I like that genre so much. And I think that I accidentally, like, compose songs that sound a lot like that. That uh, this one's fun. A little played out. Can we agree on that? Jonathan Groff uh, does a nice job uh, as this on the album. And I like him so much better in his performance in the Disney Plus filmed play version. Because I the one that I saw on stage, and I didn't mention this, I saw it in Orange County. I think in maybe 2016, maybe early 2017. And the guy playing the king fucking sucked. And he almost ruined the entire show because it was just such like low comedy foppishness, which there's a little of that in this, especially in the second act with the king. Like he does get a little bit more foppish as the play goes on. But this guy like really, and it's almost like they're uh, getting revenge for (laughs) generations of theater where there was one person of color that was the low comedy uh, clown. That that's what they're they're flipping it here. That they're the, the one white character is uh, supposed to be this uh, the, the the a clown, and that's fine. It's it's uh, anybody that has an actual problem with that is is a moron. I have a self interested problem with it because goddamn it, I wish that I could uh, play a role in this. But again, I, I I've stopped sort of thinking in those terms in general because I'm getting old. I'm an old fuck that can't play any role in anything. Anyway, um, Jonathan Groff is in the new, of course, uh, the new Merrily Roll Along on Broadway, which I really want to see, but I don't have the time, nor the money, nor the uh, ability to fly in a plane without being terrified to get to New York City to see that before it closes in April. I didn't like that Mindhunter show that Jonathan Groff was in. Uh, Groff. Did I say Groft? Anyway, Groff. I uh, I think that, yeah, much like Lin-Manuel, he doesn't really come across on screen. People used to sing You'll Be Back at the restaurant I work with singing waiters. And uh, I, you know, I, I thought about it, but I the reason I didn't want to is because I, I don't like the idea of walking around the restaurant with the wireless mic and singing a song in character. Uh, people do that sometimes, like go table to table. And you really can't sing You'll Be Back without doing the uh, posh accent and pretending to be the king. Like, it is fun because you get everybody singing along with the ba da 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 But I'm not willing to do immersive theater uh, because I find that embarrassing to watch. And I go by the golden rule uh, at my job at this restaurant. <laughs> I don't want people to be secondhand embarrassed by me pretending to be King James in front of them. It's the same reason I don't get too cute when I sing happy birthday to people, because I don't like it when uh, I'm in that position. You know, do unto others. I'm very, I'm, this is so embarrassing to even talk about, and I tried it, like, I wish I could erase this from my life and my memory, but when Hamilton was new and they were casting the touring company, the first touring company, and they put out a call on backstage, nationwide call, to send in auditioning videos. I did send in an audition video for Hamilton. And they wanted a cut of you singing and a cut of you rapping. And right now, to this day, on my YouTube channel, 
It's not for public consumption. It's um, one of the unlisted videos, uh, which I think a lot of people, a lot of auditions have you do now. You put it on YouTube, but you make it unlisted and you send them the link. And my God, it... <laughs> uh, I don't remember the name of the rapper or the name of the song, but I rapped this song and my poor uh, girlfriend at the time, I... <laughs> oh God. I recorded my own, my own piano playing as a background, a backing track because you're supposed to have a live accompanist. And so I recorded it in the keyboard itself. And I had my girlfriend sit there with her back to the camera in front of the keyboard pretending she was playing it. And I did like 50 takes because I don't know how to rap. And it's real fucking cringy. <sighs> if I'm on times when I'm feeling especially uh, masochistic, I'll go back and watch that thing. But, you know, I think that uh, I didn't know at that point <laughs> that the casting notices for Hamilton do say for most of these characters that they need to be uh, non-white actors. And I think sometimes they even specify Hamilton should be Latino. Uh, I did see an Asian Washington in, when I saw it in uh, Orange County. And you know what? Uh, it's stupid to be mad about that or to make a federal case out of it uh it's okay for me to be mad about it on a personal level though right it's okay for me to be disappointed because i can acknowledge that this must be what my black latino and asian friends felt coming up in musicals like oh oh like thinking oh I, this can be played by a latino right and then getting disappointed when they don't get cast as it because people had notions about uh that it wouldn't work the colorblind casting wouldn't work and so you know it's not uh, that big a deal, people that are mad about that. Who's mad about that? I'm catastrophizing. I tend to do that. I tend to have arguments with ghosts or people on social media who really are ghosts. Those aren't real people. Right Hand Man is a top-tier song, which comes next. Christopher Jackson has a near-perfect singing voice, and he's an old pal of Lin-Manuel. Uh, they were in Freestyle Love Supreme together, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, I think. This man's voice... Oh, yeah, and he was in In the Heights, original cast. I love his voice. Nothing else to say about it. Just has a great singing voice. This is the first point where you see that a lot of these songs do have the crash boom bang at the end, which is something that I've oft complained about, but it does not bother me here. Uh, the crash boom bang theory uh, is my own. I'm original. I coined that term. If you want to use it, please pay me a royalty of some kind. And that means it's a it's a musical it's a Broadway musical where there's a lot of songs that end with huge applauses and big uh, swelling endings. The reason it doesn't bother me here is I think because these songs all kind of top each other and they it kind of just gets better and better and they all serve the story. It's not like Ragtime, which is the first time that I noticed this, where you have a big crash boom bang at the end of "He Wanted to Say." And it's like, why did that happen? Except just to, you know, exhaust us. My favorite scenes, or rather my favorite musical numbers slash scenes, are the ones in this where, um, you know, time passes and things are happening. And I think the little ones within this song, with uh, Burr coming in and making his case to Washington and then being dismissed and then Hamilton coming in, like, I, those are my favorite. And I think the whole, for instance, like uh, Stay Alive, that whole sequence where it's just like time passing because of the guys at war and telling these little stories. And um, 
There's a thing called Hamilton One Shot to Broadway, which was a little documentary they did on PBS many years ago before it was on Disney Plus in, in its entirety. And there was a guy from the public theater who said something very interesting. The public theater, of course, is where Hamilton first opened before it moved to the Richard Rogers Theater on Broadway. He likens Lin-Manuel Miranda to Shakespeare. And he says, no, I'm not exaggerating. Fuck you. Uh, and he says, because uh, Shakespeare took the language of the people and elevated it to art. Uh, here's the direct quote. He says, quote, in Shakespeare's case, he elevated it to iambic pentameter. In Lin-Manuel's case, he elevated it to hip hop and rap, and he ennobled it by turning it into verse and putting it at the center of a stage. That's exactly what Shakespeare was doing. Now, let me half agree with this man, because even though, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of rap generally, but I think there were three decades or so of rappers that were making elevated art before this musical came out. But he is right about the novelty of how the rap is used as storytelling. That is really fresh and completely, I think, uh, an invention of Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it does kind of give it the opportunity. Somebody explained King Lear to me once. And the use of iambic pentameter in King Lear, where it is the heartbeat of the characters. First of all, it's a formal constraint, which I love, uh, which I've talked about before, uh, where, where it's like, okay, the challenge is to bring, put, tell this story and make it as artful as possible, but with 10 beats per line. And they do that all the way through King Lear until the character dies at the end. And then that's the first time he stops. He deviates from the iambic pentameter in that play because it's like his heart is stopping beating because he's dying. And there's a little of that in this where it's like, um, you know, the formal constraint of the rapping and the couplets just make it ever all the more articulate and satisfying. Am I making obvious points in this episode? I hope not. I think I might be. There's a whole section in the first act of Hamilton, like a big chunk of it, where it just pauses the action of the historical narrative and spends a lot of time in the domestic realm by having uh, the two songs sung by uh, Eliza and Angelica with a Rashomon-like telling of the same story. And then, of course, Burr's song where we learn about his personal life. And it's, uh, you know, it's that, that sort of adds to the epic nature of it, I think. Is that line, the line about um, the, 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 the Hamilton being uh, a hit with the ladies, where it says uh, Martha Washington named her feral tomcat after him. And then Hamilton goes, that's true. That line really only works when you have the author playing that role, because it's that, that's what's fun about it. The way he's saying, that's true. It's almost like... It's Lin-Manuel saying, yes, I, f I saw this in my research. It's like he's he's stepping outside of the play to be like, no, no, seriously. <laughs> uh, it doesn't really come across when someone else plays him. Philippa Sue also has a perfect singing voice. When I listen to the album and I do, and I go back to my high school thing of singing along and pretending I'm in it, I never skip that song, Helpless. I love that song. <laughs> I love her voice. Philippa Sue and Christopher Jackson. I mean, the whole original cast is amazing. And I think that everybody from the original cast has gotten more famous, obviously, as a result of this. None of them have really become stars. Because I, I think that they belong on the stage. Because, yeah, they're great at what they do. I know that she left the show to go star in Amelie the Musical. 
which you know i guess that didn't really take the word by world by storm um in real life at, <clears throat> excuse me at hamilton's wedding he there were no guests on the groom side <laughs> they, as a storytelling device in this which i think is very smart he uh, he has uh john lawrence and hercules mulligan and lafayette as his lifelong friends right that are just uh, at least in the whole first act they're his buddies and it's a happy occasion of this wedding because his friends are there. They're like, oh, <laughs> we're your buddies. But yeah, in real life, uh, Hamilton had zero friends. And the entire bride side, they had to ask some people from the bride side to go over the groom side. And uh, Lin-Manuel said that he did not include that because he thought that would be too tragic for this point of the story. And then it should have been celebratory. Um, you know, obviously... Renee Elise Goldsberry as Angelica is outstanding and the song Satisfied is outstanding and it was sort of written with her in mind because of that's her thinking speed or her speaking speed is the speed of that song. She does say a weird thing in interviews and I was a bit of a Hamilton completist in 2015, 2016 and so I consumed all of this and uh, that cypher rap uh, where I think it was her and David Diggs and somebody else did, uh, you know, she did an original rap. She, she talks about uh, she is providing a service by um, telling the story of the founding mothers. And in that cipher rap, she says, I came to represent the ladies of our histories. We know the founding fathers, but the mothers are a mystery. Okay, I, I say this gingerly. Can you really call Angelica Schuyler a founding mother? She's kind of just... Her only function in this story is that she has a crush on her brother-in-law, right? She doesn't really make history and i know that women were not permitted to make history it's not anyone's fault well it's somebody's fault it's not the women's fault uh <laughs> uh but yeah i don't know there's no uh betsy ross here or uh anybody anybody else that abigail adams well or i don't know i don't know anything about abigail you know i'm, I'm a chauvinist for bringing this up and i apologize i just that always hits my ear weirdly because I feel like, yes, it is important to tell the untold story of uh, the females that shaped our history. But I, I struggle to see that in this musical with Elise, especially with Angelica. You know, Eliza does a whole thing at the end. But like Angelica, again, she has a crush on her brother-in-law. And that's kind of it. One of the things that she likes about him uh, that attracts him her to him is that he's got intelligent eyes and a hunger pang frame is that hot really sound off ladies is that is it hot to have intelligent eyes and a hunger pang frame because that sounds kind of off-putting that's another reason i could never play hamilton other than my white skin is that uh i don't have a hunger pang frame i have a uh an eight too much frame I love this, the way, the, the device of this song, where it gets to the three fundamental truths, right? And one of the best lines, um, uh, I'm the oldest and the wittiest and the gossip in New York City is insidious. God, like, where, how do you come up with that? How do you do that? I feel like it just comes out of him. These freestyle guys, you know? I've, I fancy myself, I don't toot my own horn very often, I fancy myself a pretty good writer of lyrics. But I could not in a million years freestyle really good lyrics the way that Lin-Manuel and his buddies in the Freestyle Love Supreme can. 
And you all know that by hearing my closing lines, most of which I don't even freestyle. I spend 30 seconds quickly thinking up. Um, and I know that, that those are, you know, near rhymes and that Sondheim would be outraged by them. But God, how do you not love that? Oldest and the wittiest and the gossip in New York City is insidious. Fuck, that's good. One of the high points of seeing it on stage with the blocking, um, the whole rewind thing of this song. And uh, I guess I had a note to talk about this later, but this is relevant here. I love the way Hamilton does kind of what Meredith Wilson's Music Man does, where they, there are little specific devices for each song, where they break the rules of the story to tell you the story in a new way. Like here, they, they, you know, they haven't been rewinding up until this point in the show. Uh, but they, they do one song and then they rewind to the beginning of the song and then they fucking tell the story in a different way and they use the rotating stage to do this. Um, and the high notes that she sings, uh, to your union, <laughs> I like how that comes in when she watches the bride and groom kiss. It's a really earned, really good marriage of, uh, first of all, lyrics and music and concepts, directing. These guys know what they're doing, these makers of Hamilton. I'm nowhere near the end of the first act, and I'm coming up on an hour. I thought this was going to be a shorter episode because there's no second musical, but let's keep on going here. I'm having a good time. I'm doing all right. I don't have to go to work for another, what? Oh, God. I, I got to go soon. Oh, boy. So, Leslie Odom Jr. plays Aaron Burr. Um, I think that he's perfectly cast in this because he has a really nice voice that can be delicate but also can be fierce. Um, but he also is kind of milk toast, right? And he is sort of a Salieri in this, which is on purpose. Uh, Lin-Manuel has said as much, that this was based on Amadeus and the Salieri-Mozart thing. Which is kind of, and I meant to look this up and I didn't, and so I may sound ignorant to people that are know a lot about uh, storytelling and playwriting and uh, creative writing in general. It feels like... What makes that so exciting in the play, Amadeus, and in the movie is that it's like a brand new story structure, right? Because <laughs> there's a whole thing about there's a certain number of stories you can tell. Or man versus man, man versus nature, man versus fucking dog. I don't know how what they are. But this is kind of like um, uh, man versus man blended with man versus himself and man versus nature. It's like all the, it's a guy who is mediocre and wishes he wasn't and is living his life full of resentment in the shadow of somebody extraordinary. And that to me is the most interesting part of this musical is Aaron Burr's relationship to Hamilton. And uh, this is really comes across in the song Wait For It, which always makes me think of TikTok because everybody, they put a funny video on TikTok. They always put a caption that says, wait for it so that you'll wait for the very funny ending, which is usually not as funny as it was supposed to be. They just didn't want you to swipe on the video. So that's a real good song is my point. <laughs> wait for it. Gets into Stay Alive. I already talked about this. It's one of my favorites. Um, I did not get the rap reference of the Ten Dual Commandments. That this is, of course, a reference to, I think, Biggie Smalls. Am I right about that? 
And then later, the if you don't know, now you know. That's also Biggie Smalls. But I'm so sorry if I'm right, uh, wrong about this. And I'm sorry if I'm right about it. They have the duel with Charles Lee. The, 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 the guy playing Charles Lee uh, <laughs> on stage is really fucking going for it. He's got like five lines and he's hitting them hard. He's like, I'm going to fucking make the most of this. The uh, my I think my favorite part is the little conversation between Hamilton and Burr. Uh, with the, the can we agree that duels are dumb and immature? Sure, but your man has to answer for his words, Burr. With his life, we both know that's absurd, sir. Hang on, how many men died because Lee was inexperienced and ruinous? Okay, so we're doing this. Um, that's really fun and smart, and also the orchestration under it. The way that uh, the beat gets very sparse, and um, this is a good time to talk about Alex Lacamoire who is the unsung hero, I think, of Hamilton. He's the orchestrator and musical director, uh, works on just about everything now, most recently the revival of Sweeney Todd. And he, uh, it was very, I, 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 when it first premiered, the Grobe and Sweeney Todd, he talked about how important it was to him to retain the fullness of the score, the Sondheim score, and not do this bullshit that they've done in revivals where they pare it down. He did all of Miranda's stuff with him up to this point, I wonder if like he deserves more credit towards the writing of the score than he gets. Because obviously everybody considers this a Lin-Manuel Miranda joint, which it is. But when you watch that documentary on PBS, you, you see that Lin-Manuel is kind of like sitting there with a little keyboard and GarageBand uh, writing these things. And, you know, it's kind of a big deal that I, I, I feel like the, the journey from that to what it actually sounds like. Um, people don't really give that. I think, in general, orchestrators are the unsung heroes of musical theater. And, you know, orchestras are miracles. How the fuck do orchestras exist? How do people do that? And how did they do it 500 fucking years ago? How was that possible? That they people were able to figure that out? To get all these instruments together and work in concert with each other? Blows my mind. I do skip the song, That Would Be Enough. Um, because I don't care that much about that song. And I've heard, speaking of TikTok, um, a lot of, I've seen more than one person do a clip of this song where they're like, this is me whenever my husband can't find his car keys. And it's her, uh, lip syncing to look at where you are. Look at where you started. The fact that you're alive is a miracle, but she's just sort of, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, which was funny the first time. I guess. And then it happened a lot more times. Uh, it's, it's funny that she's like, oh, you know, that would be enough if you'd stay here and, you know, we're going to have a son. And then one song later, he's like, nah, not really. Not enough. I'm going to go fight. The Lafayette uh, rap uh, is everybody's favorite. Uh, and I think uh, this is also written with David Diggs in rhyme, this in, in sorry, in mind, because <laughs> this is how this guy raps, which is super fast. Um, what's the name of his original rap outfit? <laughs> I sound like an old man. I got to look that up. Give me a sec. Okay, Clipping is what it's called. That's his uh, rap project, uh, pre and post Hamilton, where, which the thing is, I do have respect for rap. I think I did more as a result of this show, which I know makes me sound like a white boy charlatan. I will say um, I don't have an ear for rap. I didn't grow up listening to it. And so uh, I think that maybe if I spent more time, 
I would develop an ear for it, but some of it kind of passes me by. During the pandemic, I was in an album of the Week Club with some friends where we took turns um, bringing an album to the table where we all had to listen to and then talk about it. And a couple of those were ended up being rap albums. Uh, one of them was Nas, uh, whatever album that is that has New York State of Mind on it. Is that called New York State of Mind, the album? I don't know. But uh, And that was like, I listened to that twice, and I, I find it hard to latch on to it, it just it's the 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 fastness of it and the uh, cadence of it just my ears are not trained even though i can recognize it as good and david Diggs, the way he raps ultra fast to the point where it's like i i it's you can't understand it's a feat but i can't understand a fucking word of it <laughs> and that's what this uh i'm taking this horse by the reins because it's good for the blood signs i can't do it you fucking idiot now, history has its eyes on you. Fine, whatever. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, Yorktown, dude, Yorktown, Yorktown. Let's talk about it. Um, I detest war as an institution, and I am not at all patriotic. But Yorktown gives me chills, and it makes me feel patriotic because it's so good. Uh, it's so uh, resonant. It's the writing, man. It's the writing of it. The Hercules Mulligan part is a win. Uh, God, you gotta love that Hercules Mulligan part. Um, are you not allowed to say fuck on Disney Plus? What's going on? Do we really have? There's two fucks in Hamilton, and they're both gone, and they're both uh, great moments, and we lose them in Disney Plus because you know somebody decided at some point that Hamilton is uh, for children. That, that surprised me, by the way, when Hamilton, when children started getting really into Hamilton. And it made me think I wasn't as erudite as I thought I was for liking it. Oh, boy. My stepson was Hamilton for Halloween. And, uh, and uh, maybe, what was that, 2016? Yeah. And I thought at the time, I was like, this is a cool fucking kid. Because he's dressed as Hamilton. But then I saw uh, that there was like a trend that year of Hamil kids. And a lot of kids were Hamilton for Halloween. And that kids were listening to Hamilton and enjoying it. Which I find strange. Hercules Mulligan, I need no introduction. When you knock me down, I get the fuck back up again. It's dirty, man. It's a war. We gotta say the F word. Don't cut that out, Disney. Everybody's favorite line is, Immigrants, we get the job done. Now, that's fine and everything. I just gotta give you a little, you know, a little thing here. Uh, which is that the real Hamilton... Though he was an immigrant from the Caribbean, uh, Hamilton and the Federalists that he ran with were anti-immigration. <laughs> uh, different kind of immigration, certainly, in those days. He opposed uh, President Jefferson's policies once Jefferson became president because uh, his policies were pro-immigration, which, of course, he changed his. He was anti-immigrant, too, prior to that. Uh, and Hamilton thought that only native English speakers should be let into the country. He didn't want the nasty-ass French coming in and diluting their lovely English way of life. Here's a quote. Uh, Hamilton said, The safety of a republic depends essentially on the energy of a common national sentiment, on a uniformity of principles and habits, on the exemption of the citizens from foreign bias and prejudice, and on that love of country which will almost invariably be found to be closely connected with birth, education, and family. So, there you go. Again, doesn't matter. Not here to fact-check the musical Hamilton. But this is apparently an argument that conservatives made after that whole debacle where Mike Pence went to go see Hamilton. And uh, they made a little speech to him after the curtain call, which was very funny. 
uh, at the time it was a thing. Everybody in DC, uh, had to go watch Hamilton. Like every major Hollywood player had to, like, that was a thing that they did. They went to go see Hamilton. The Obamas saw it twice, of course. And, uh, during that 2016 election, uh, they all went and saw it. Did Trump see it? I don't think Trump saw it. He's a, he's a Phantom of the Opera loving moron, so he didn't see it. But Mike Pence went and saw it. I think they had just been, uh, they had just won the election when Pence went to go see it. Anyway, um, the guy that plays Hercules Mulligan, we didn't talk about him. Uh, his name is, uh, Okedit, oh shit, Okiete Onauduan. Okiete Onauduan. You know what I did? I wrote that out phonetically here in my notes so that I could seamlessly uh, say it without uh, fucking it up. And then I made a whole big meal of saying it phonetically. So I'm an idiot. Anyway, good job. Okay. Uh, oh, now do one. They make a point at the end of Yorktown to uh, remind us uh, black and white soldiers wonder alike if this really means freedom. Uh, as if to say... I know that we're getting very excited about this, uh, you know, Revolutionary War victory and this idea of freedom, but let's not forget, it's not really freedom for everybody. <laughs> and that's the, the, the gulf between the idea of freedom being sung by people of color uh, with this level of passion and the idea of what that freedom actually meant is it's 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 best left unexamined if you want to enjoy the musical Hamilton, right? And again, that's fine, you know. Everybody knows, everybody understands, except maybe the children, and since the children are listening to this. So yeah, if if you if your kid likes Hamilton, remind them that this was that the idea of freedom was not solved with the Battle of Yorktown. Okay, we had to go through an entire civil war a hundred years later, and then we had to go through Jim Crow and some other issues. So there you go. That's how that goes. This is another case where I feel disappointed by how simple the blocking is. It's kind of just all the guys standing on stairs, or stairs, chairs, when they win the war. The song Dear Theodosia is a sweet little song. I laughed out loud when I saw the track listing of that Hamilton mixtape, um, which I haven't mentioned that before. Yeah, they came out with a Hamilton mixtape. Uh, because Ben Folds sings Dear, the Dear Theodosia. And it's like, when I first heard Dear Theodosia, I was like, oh, this is like one of those fucking Ben Folds songs where he writes a, a song directly to his children and puts them on albums and nobody really gives a shit about them. He's the king of writing songs about his own children that no one gives a shit about. Um, I think it's fine to write a song about your child and to your child when they're born or when they're little. But uh, does it, does it, do other people need to hear it? If I ever do this, please put me out of my misery. Cut to, I, I'll probably do this. Um, and here's a problem I have with this song. Why does a kid have to blow us all away? You know, why is that what you hope for for your child? Can't this child have a quiet, satisfying life in obscurity? You know, do they have to be, do we all have to be history makers? I wouldn't wish that for my child. I would wish for my child to be uh, fulfilled and happy with zero people knowing his name. Except for uh, the people, maybe 10 people closest to him. It's important, this song, Dear Theodosia. Even though it doesn't seem like it when you first hear it. And it may feel like a speed bump. But what makes it important is that it sets up some stakes for extreme emotional resonance later in the second act. 
regarding Philip Hamilton and Theodosia Burr. There are two moments where um, the fact that these fathers love these children is important. Okay. There's a song that is not on the original cast recording. It's called Story of Tonight, Reprise. It is the song where we learn of the death of John Lawrence. Here's what... Um, it's the only song, by the way, that is not on the album that is on stage. This is what Lin-Manuel says about that. Quote, I made a decision not to record the scene on the album for two reasons. One, it really is more of a scene than a song, the only scene in our show, and I think its impact is at its fullest in production form. Two, as someone who grew up only listening to cast albums, we don't have money for a lot of Broadway shows like most people, those withheld moments were revelations to me when I finally experienced them on stage years later. Hamilton is sung through, and I wanted to have at least one revelation in store for you. I stand by the decision, and I think the album is better for it. And that makes a lot of sense. That makes sense. Um, but let's talk for a moment about this death of John Lawrence. A senseless death at the hands of the retreating British. Now, uh, this is, of course, after the Battle of Yorktown. So the, the, the Revolutionary War is already won. Uh, John Lawrence at the time is, uh, or at least right before he died, he was confined to a bed near a creek because he had a severe fever due to malaria. He hears from somebody that the British, who again have just lost the war and are in retreat, they're coming through Charleston on a ferry to pick up some rice and supplies and shit. He decides to pull together a group of guys to fire guns at the retreating British. Um... And apparently, by the way, also he got no sleep the night before this happened because he was, quote, spending the evening in a delightful company of ladies. Thank God malaria isn't contagious, but he was probably literally shitting himself while he was having sex with all these ladies, or at least in their delightful company. The British somehow heard about this impending attack in advance, and so they had guys aiming at the guys who were aiming at them. And John Lawrence, apparently, when this broke out, he wanted to do the whole thing himself to take all the glory and just do all the fighting himself. That's why he's one of the hungriest brothers with something to prove. Uh, and they killed him. He was one of three who died. So unnecessary, dude. Anyway. It gets into non-stop, which is this song that closes out the first act. And they talk a little bit about the Constitutional Convention, which I learned about in my learning, and also watching that HBO series about John Adams with Paul Giamatti as John Adams, which... Uh, was that was a big deal at the time. I saw it many years later, and I found it uh, repellent. I think maybe I'm because of, I don't know, <laughs> every time Paul Giamatti took his wig off and laid in bed with Laura Linney, I, it grossed me out. I don't know. I don't know why. But um, one thing I thought watching that and watching this that I was reminded of is it must have smelled really bad at that constitutional convention. Because these guys weren't having proper showers in uh, the, the 18th century, right? They were, they smelled bad. And they were all in a room together for a long period of time. And um, the prolific nature of Hamilton and his way with words. I think that the, the Lin-Manuel's brand of storytelling is so perfectly matched with this story. Because Hamilton did so much writing and he was so persuasive and articulate 
um, that I, I, I can see why there hasn't been another wrapped through Lin-Manuel musical because it's like, how do you top that? It's just the perfect marriage of content and form. Content dictates form, so says Stephen Sondheim. Uh, nonstop turns into an all skate by the end, uh, which if you don't know, an all skate is where you close out the first act of your musical by doing little reprises to earlier songs in the musical, like One Day More from Les Miserables. This is the, Les Miserables is in, uh, the most uh, noticeable, identifiable example of that. And um, honestly here, I find it a little corny. Uh, it, there are so many. I don't know. You couldn't. I guess you couldn't really open close the first act with Yorktown, but boy, maybe you should have, because this is not the biggest. This the crash boom bang at the end of nonstop doesn't have the punch that that song had. The last line of that song where he goes, "I am not throwing away my shot." <laughs> Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton, just you wait. That's corny. But for some reason, that always makes me, him screaming that line always makes me think of Chris Penn at the end of Reservoir Dogs, speaking of Tarantino, where he's like, stop aiming that gun at my dad. I'm not a huge Tarantino fan, by the way, guys. I'm not some man child that likes Tarantino a whole lot. I liked it when I was a child or a teenager. Uh, this is going to get us into intermission. This is a long fucking episode. I can tell. Um, hang on one second. I'm going to take a personal intermission and go to the bathroom. And we're back. Welcome. Okay. If this were, if I had any sponsors at all, that's where you would have heard a word from said sponsors, but I don't have any. Um, and thank God for that. Uh, cause you don't have to hear any ads, but I do think that you all should uh, get some uh, blue chew and some MeUndies and uh, sign up for Squarespace. So the cool thing about Hamilton is it's there's a division where the first act is about history and the second act is about politics. And I enjoy uh, the way that it rides the line talking about politics in a way that is not ideolog ideological really. And um, I am somebody who enjoys indulging in politics on a hobby level um i don't get to I'm, I'm i'm trying to do that less because i feel like it's bad for my mental health sometimes and i think that it's because i'm addicted to righteous outrage and the especially the area of politics where i fall um ideologically which is what people would call far left. Uh, it's easy to be driven by righteous outrage. And the news, uh, news commentary is driven by righteous outrage because that's why, you know, I, maybe we're all addicted to it. That's what gets people to watch the news. And that's what, you know, gets me to listen to my leftist podcasts because if I feel like I want to get fired up about some shit that's going on. So... I think that uh, the thing that bothers me, though, um, not about Hamilton, but about the way that people on my side of the far left aisle were talking about Hamilton is uh, they don't get that it's an anti-hero story, which I think that it ultimately is. I mean, the end does make a sentimental case for him being a hero uh, and a great guy, but I think that they really do portray Hamilton for all of his 
flaws and nuances in a way that I think is good. And all of these figures. This came out shortly, of course. You know, uh, Hamilton came out before the 2016 election where everybody's brains broke apart. And, of course, the ha the Obamas were really into it. And I had a bit of a tension uh, between my uh, sycophantic love of the musical Hamilton and my desire to be part of a crew of people on the left flank of the part of the Democratic Party, right? Of uh, the Bernie bros, for lack of a better term. I don't like that term, but that's what I was. I was with the Bernie people. And uh, first of all, yeah, I mean, the you know, the fact that, you know. <laughs> so Lin-Manuel Miranda dips in his toe into establishment Democrat Party stuff. He even got involved with uh, the West Wing reboot, and he wrote a, wa a rap about the West Wing. And the West Wing, um, listen, first of all, don't, don't listen to me talk about the West Wing. Listen to the West Wing thing, a now defunct podcast, where they the, they talked about that show and did a rewatch of it, but from a highly critical, uh, angry leftist perspective. And um, I, I think at one point during that 2016 election, Hillary Clinton quoted Hamilton where she said, uh, they don't have a plan, they just hate mine. And it's like, shut up. Like, uh, first of all, that was definitely somebody from her team that uh, <laughs> said, hey, you know what's hot right now? Hamilton. Let's try to see if we can quote Hamilton in this interview, and then maybe you'll get uh, some younger voters. I, I, I have no doubt that's what happened. There's no way that Hillary watched that show and remembered that line and then quoted it. So uh, there's a little of that going on with this. Uh, but like I said, I think that uh, the show is uh, the second act of the show is about politics, but it is kind of apolitical. It's just it's easy to make draw comparisons based on things that are happening uh, that maybe don't need to be drawn. This is not very articulate what I'm saying, and I blame that break. I blame the bathroom break that I took. I'm going to get back into the show itself. The show, of course, opens with uh, What Did I Miss? But not before uh, Aaron Bird does his little reset. He does all the way through. How does a bastard orphan so-and-so? Which is a great device that I really enjoy. Uh, David Diggs as Jefferson is perfect. I mean, What Did I Miss? is not my favorite song. Uh, even though I get the point that it's make that it's, it's trying to make the music old timey because it's reflecting how Jefferson is out of touch because he w was in France during the Revolutionary War. Uh, but you know, the, the David Diggs, uh, is just, I don't know what else to say about it, except that he does a great performance and it introduces the villain of the piece, but I do like the way that he's not a direct villain and it does kind of, you know, it doesn't completely malign him. Not that they shouldn't malign him, uh, cause he was a slave owning prick and, the way that the slaves, uh, you know, I here's another. I listened to a podcast series recently called Hell on Earth, where they talk about all. No, that's not what it's called. It's called uh, Hell of Presidents. Hell on Earth is by the same people, but Hell of Presidents, where they talk about. Uh, it's a history podcast uh, from again from a far left perspective, and they talk about the fact that in the um, all of our founding fathers and early presidents, a lot of them, uh, you know, Hamilton, of course, was anti-slavery on a policy level and was a, you know, abolitionist, so to speak, or an early abolitionist. But most of them, especially the ones that became presidents or took power, they 
um, were against slavery in their private lives. Like they, they were like privately against slavery, but they were pro slavery on a policy level. <laughs> like they would not, they would not uh, write any, uh, put, enact any laws that would uh, inhibit uh, slavery on any level. But they would say, oh, well, me, I, I think that slave, slavery is a terrible thing. Which, uh, you know, that makes you think about uh, healthcare in our time, doesn't it, folks? You got uh, maybe one or two politicians that uh, really give a shit, or rather gave a shit, no one's really talking about it anymore, about uh, single-payer healthcare. And then you've got a whole lot of other uh, blue Democrat politicians that say, listen, I think it's great. I just uh, don't think uh, the time is right. Or, you know, it's just not possible. Can't do it. And uh, let's be sensible here. I, I uh, that, that, that makes my blood boil for some reason. Uh, more, no, well, not. It makes my blood boil more than like a super uh, right wing hillbilly. And I think maybe that's because I didn't grow up again around right wing people, but I did grow up around. Hollywood adjacent liberals that uh, I so I get angrier with these like oh, let's be sensible Democrat line than I do because it, it, on some level it's more honest to just be like no nope, no one should get any health care everybody should die if they don't have all that money to pay their hospital bills it's like more frustrating if you say well no, we, we can't we don't have the votes that would be not be sensible uh, I think if you look at the $15 minimum wage, for instance, speaking of 2016, uh, <laughs> that's what they were saying about uh, Bernie Sanders. I mean, with 15 bucks an hour, I'm going to make sure the minimum wage is 15 bucks an hour. And now it's on track to uh, being that. And at the time, everyone was saying, Bernie, come on, this isn't fantasy land. So fuck you. It's the only way anything gets done. You got to sh uh, shoot for the moon. And if you miss, you'll still be among the stars, baby. Boy, oh boy. But the thing is, like I said, so they don't uh, completely uh, vilify either of these, any of these characters. They're all complicated because it was a different time, blah, blah, blah. My professor uh, in my the class that I, I get so mad at, he talked about how he uh, thinks it's getting tiresome, the taking down of statues. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, I do think you shouldn't take them down. We should throw eggs at them. But I think that uh, tyranny is the intentional removal of nuance. I don't think anybody should be a statue. We should, shouldn't be statues of anybody. These are just all human beings. I like the way... Yeah, <laughs> shut up. The cabinet battles. So um, the, the, the cabinet battle, the rap battles that are the cabinet meetings, they could be so cheesy if they wanted to be. And if you tell somebody what the conceit of that is, if you're like, there's this musical Hamilton and... When there are uh, cabinet meeting debates, they do them like rap battles, like Eminem. That sounds like schoolhouse rock bullshit. But if you actually listen to them, they're so well written that uh, it works. It works. Cabinet battles. They're great. In fact, before, in the days before everybody and their mother knew about Hamilton, um, I, uh, my sister and her husband were visiting us, and he's a history teacher. Then I played him uh, cabinet battle number one, and uh, he was like, wow, that's great. <laughs>
So there's that. Uh, they, they don't like the plan. They just hate mine. Uh, yeah. And then, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So when it gets into the, uh, my dearest Angelica, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And tomorrow that whole sequence. So um, little Philip rapping. In the second act, Anthony Ramos, uh, John Lawrence is dead. So he now plays uh, Philip. Um, Philip? Yeah, right? Yeah, Philip uh, Hamilton, the son, one of the kids. Uh, him rapping, that little rap, uh, you know, my name is Philip, I am a poet. It's surprising and delightful, because you feel like, uh, based on the way that that song is going, you feel like you're about to see a sad moment, because he's like, she's like, there's a surprise before dinner. He's like, oh, I'll be there in a minute. Okay, I'm busy. He's like, oh, your son's five years old today. There's something he'd like to say. He's been practicing all day. Like, you feel like this is now going to be about Hamilton not having time for his family and missing out on all the good things and that this kid is going to rap. He's not going to give a shit. But the fact that this kid raps and it's adorable and Hamilton is, like, so into it, it's it's a nice left turn. It's really good. And it's funny how Lin-Manuel really only needs a pair of glasses on his face to look way older. Ditto for Christopher Jackson later. It's a good way to make your characters age. Just put some glasses on him. The My Dearest Angelica part of the letter, uh, the whole thing where she sings the about the comma, the placement of the comma, that's based on a real letter, apparently, where Angelica was obsessing over where he put the comma in My Dearest, comma, Angelica. It doesn't really pay off the way that it wants to, and that is an interesting story. It's just, I don't know, I, I, I don't like it as much. Uh, it feels like uh, I don't care <laughs> when they do it in the song. This is one of my very few uh, criticisms here. When Angelica visits, um, and that Angelica, Eliza, and they're just freaking out and hugging each other, uh, it weirdly makes me emotional when I hear it on the album and when I see it. And I think it's just because the play has such an epic proportion and is this protracted saga. And I feel like I've been on such a long journey with these people that uh, it makes me happy. It makes me uh, feel for it. It makes me, I, I, it makes me glad that she went home and visited and the sisters got to reunite. <laughs> The next song, uh, Say No to This, about the uh, Skyler affair. Um, I wanted to talk about that. I don't know uh, where the fuck I wrote this exactly. Oh, yeah, that's later. Anyway, uh, the, the, the intro to it where it's Bird narrating, and then he says, uh, and Alexander's by himself. I'll let him tell it. Again, it's like a new storytelling advice. It breaks its own rules. We've had this one narrator and that from time to time gives narrating duties over to, you know, Angelica for that one song. But then he says, I'll let him tell it. It's just like the music man where it's like, OK, this is going to be a song where it sounds like chickens in a coop to uh, to tell the story of uh, gossiping women. And here's a song where these people are going to rap basically to the sound of train, a train moving. Uh, and that's the Rock Island song. Uh, I love when musical theater does this. One of the best things it does. In this part of the show, uh, we meet Mariah Reynolds, played by uh, Jasmine Cephas Jones, who played Peggy in the first act. Uh, Jasmine Cephas Jones has an amazing voice. It's just so satisfying to hear. And I got to admit, I have a little crush on her uh, from watching that TV show, Blind Spotting, which I think, I know that's based on the movie, which I think was written and directed by David Diggs. My, uh, and it's got a few uh, Hamilton cast members involved in it. Anyway, she's great, uh, Jasmine Cephas Jones. She's uh, maybe there's exception to the rule that these uh, Hamilton characters don't have uh, don't fit on the screen. She does. She's great in this show. Uh, I check out that TV show, Blind Spotting. 
I love the way uh, when he says the first chorus of Say No to This, where he's like, and then her math is on mine, and I don't say no. And the ensemble goes, no, because it's almost like they're speaking for the audience, because it's like we love the relationship between Eliza and uh, Alexander. And the fact that he's cheating on her is like, what the fuck are you doing? No! And uh, it's fun. I like that. It's smart, the way that that happens. It's kind of dark. It's dark that he cheats on Eliza. This is fucked up. Um, I was happy that I read the synopsis uh, of the show before hearing this song because the whole thing with James Reynolds blackmailing him. Did everybody understand this? Because I feel like that goes by fast. <laughs> Maybe uh, it's just me, like a lot of these things. Another musical theater history reference here, of course, comes at the end of Say No to This. Say it with me now. What's it from? Three, two, one. The last five years. Uh, he sings, nobody needs to know, which is a, obviously a reference because that's even the same melody as the song. All right, the panic recedes. Nobody needs to know. Based on the most depressing song in the last five years where uh, he's cheating on Kathy. Speaking of depressing, let's talk about the next song, The Room Where It Happens. The Room Where It Happens. Uh, where it's like, yeah, it tells us a hard truth about uh, politics, uh, that things are decided in secret by elites and not uh, we don't live in a functioning democracy. But it makes you wonder what we're even doing here, <laughs> telling this wonderful story about the Founding Fathers. It's kind of just saying, oh, they were all pricks and this is all, this is all bullshit. And I feel like when um, the, the leftist podcast that I listen to, the, the podcasts, plural, that I listen to from a leftist perspective, which have dwindled since 2020. I got real into them during the 2020 election. And now uh, it's all kind of fractured and they're all doing diss tracks of each other, about each other, diss tracks about each other. Um, a lot of them are so, um, I feel like they make fun of Hamilton as a thing because of what I talked about. The fact that Lin-Manuel is sort of Dem, uh, adjacent, uh, blue dog, uh, Hillary Clinton seat sniffer. But, um, I feel like whenever they do that, I, I feel like these people have not seen or heard Hamilton. And again, they don't understand that it is an anti-hero story. And I feel like I want to quote this song to them because it's like, uh, you know, the whole song, duh, we all know, is about, you know, nobody really knows what happens in the room where it happens, where the sausage gets made. And the end of that, he sings, the art of the compromise, hold your nose and close your eyes. We want our leaders to save the day, but we don't get a say in what they trade away. We dream of a brand new start, but we dream in the dark for the most part. And it's brilliant because so Lin-Manuel knows this. And Aaron Burr, the character, knows this. He's the one telling us this. But because he's a little worm, the, the conclusion he draws from this is not, this is all bullshit, this is all a fucking Fugazi lie, and I have to expose this corruption. His conclusion is, I gotta get in there. I gotta get into the hell halls of power. I, I wanna be in the room where it happens. So, yeah. And that's the thing that everybody knows but nobody talks about when they talk about American freedom and the genius of the Founding Fathers. And James Madison is oft quoted for his anti-populism. He was uh, worried about the popular arts, so to speak, where people might be, quote, stimulated by some irregular passion. And we have to make sure that, uh, quote, enlightened statesmen will always be at the helm of the government. 
so that, so that the intemperate wills and passions of the people don't take over. Hence the fucking electoral college. And if there's a kernel of truth in any of that, right? So you can't have everybody making all of the decisions on a democratic basis all the time. We're fine. But it's pretty hard to stomach that idea, uh, those Madison quotes, when you look around in the times that we live in of super delegates and money in politics uh, taking over and the complete clownish uselessness of our Congress now. And it's annoying when you complain about these things to people. And you argue for open primaries or more direct democracy. And these sort of serious adult types, like my brother-in-law, respond with shit like, Oh, actually, if you look at what the founding fathers say, you know, it's not really supposed to be. Well, then that sucks. Because they would be better to have uh, everybody getting a say for real than for these assholes uh, to be in charge of everything. Right? Wouldn't it? Am I crazy? <laughs> Hamilton himself called American the American people the great beast. Had to tame the great beast. We gotta, we gotta get behind some closed doors, guys, and make the people think that they're making these decisions. We're not gonna promise them the pursuit of property, the pursuit of property, which was the original th thing in the document. We're gonna promise them the pursuit of happiness. Why? Because uh, happiness is, <laughs> you know, you, any is what happiness is whatever you want it to be. Call back to last week, Scrooge. Thomas Frank wrote a book about this a few years ago called The People Know! Exclamation point, um, about the populism and how that's been uh, maligned over the years, especially uh, during the uh, Gilded Age and that. And I mentioned bloody bloody Andrew Jackson in a previous episode. Uh, there's a dumb sort of conflation in people's minds between populism and uh, things like Trump and Andrew Jackson and dummies and, uh, you know, Nazis in the streets. But that's, you know, I think that if more attention and respect was paid to the populist left, then maybe you wouldn't have a scary, rabid uh, populist far right on your hands. Could be wrong. I don't really know anything about anything. Because Hamilton is not a history lesson first, and it is uh, first and foremost a story, it's very important. Hamilton is able to have it both ways. I said that already. God, is this repetitive? This whole episode, when he says, this, yeah, the whole song, rising up, the people, we can feel the fervor of that, but we, uh, and we kind of forget about what Burr is saying in this song, the room where it happens, because by the end, we're really just cheering for Leslie Odom Jr. and his fire performance. <laughs> um, if you owned an Android in the year 2015, when uh, Hamilton came out on Spotify, then you are like me. You missed a beautiful musical transition from uh, Skylar Defeated to Cabinet Battle 2 because they do that thing where it's there's a seamless... Uh, it's one song into another without a break, but they do the thing where the next track ends in the middle of a little riff. And I, I can't hum it for you, but the strings go like... Do, 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 do. I, have to, I swear the, I swear your pride will be the death of us all. Beware, it goeth before the fall. Do, 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 do. The issue on the table. Um, nowadays with an iPhone for some reason, uh, and Spotify on the iPhone, it goes right into it, but the Spotify on an Android in 2015, you'd get a little hiccup. Couldn't matter less. The only problem really with the cabinet battles, which are some of the strongest moments in the show, is that story-wise, Hamilton is supposed to be the winner of both of these debates, but Jefferson is kind of better in both of them, in the way that he presents his arguments and the arguments that he makes. I think... Because, you know, Hamilton kind of just says, yeah, but, uh, you know, what about uh, you didn't fight in the war? And also, uh, you own slaves. 
which are both things that are true. But uh, it's a kind of red herring argument, isn't it? Wouldn't you call that the red herring fallacy? It's not what uh, you left the uh, purview of the argument to say that. It gets into the song called Washington on their side. Now, again, this came out before the 2016 election and the Bernie-Hillary uh, rivalry. But it, there are echoes of that here. You got the anti-Wall Street sentiment. Now, I know, like, look, I don't know what financial systems uh, looked like in, uh, you know, before 1800 or what Wall Street was originally supposed to be like in the late 18th century. Uh, but obviously, you know, th these institutions now, these financial institutions are highly worthy of criticism. And whenever I hear arguments for anti-corruption or economic populism, I get very excited. Uh, but I have to admit that I am constrained by my own ignorance of economics to actually join that argument. Uh, and earlier in the show, Hamilton's rebuttal to Jefferson's criticism of the national bank idea is, uh, hey, you own slaves. Like I said, and like, you know, we all agree that, of course, slavery was abhorrent, but it's a little cynical to bring that up when we're talking about your idea to form a national bank, right? And I remember the media doing a version of this in response to Bernie Sanders, like he would make, you know, his functional arguments, uh, the 1%, uh, the 1% owns the 99%, the 1%. And then the media would say, oh, well, he's weak on reparations and his ideals of anti-corruption and anti-Wall Street only appeal to white men who like the Dave Matthews band. <sighs> and, you know, it's hard to make an argument against that as a white man. I don't like the Dave Matthews band, but I am a white man and I do have a beard and I do wear flannel. But I did go to a Bernie rally, and that's there was a lot more diversity than the media would have had you believe. The Hamilton musical was written before all this, is my point. The 2016 and the 2020 primaries, both of which ruined my brain and the brain of the nation. During 2016, I was on a, doing a medical trial uh, because for some weird reason, I saw an ad for a, a drug trial for uh, a medication for a binge eating disorder. And I was like, hey, I think I might have that. Let me get in on this. But the medicine that they gave me was like some SSRI inhibitor type thing. And boy, did it fuck my shit up. I did not enjoy it. It made me uh, feel like I could not stop doing the thing I was presently uh, engaged in doing. And so that meant if I got on Facebook to get uh, in a political argument with somebody about Bernie v. Hillary, I would do that for hours. And boy, did that suck. That was no fun. <laughs> And like I said, it was a big prestige thing for politicians to go see Hamilton in that first year or two when Hamilton was out. And uh, Hillary went and saw it. Bernie also went to go see Hamilton. Uh, but he did see it the same night that America Ferrero went to go see it. And uh, I people uh, really read into the fact that Lin-Manuel prioritized America Fer Ferrera's presence there more than Bernie's. Because he always took a picture of the person, sometimes took a picture with them, and tweeted it out with some pun. Uh, with Bernie, they just took a picture of him there, uh, and he said, feel the burn, feel the burr. Uh, and then, but then he had a picture with America Ferreira saying, America, the story of America yesterday with America today, because her name's America. Whatever, dude. The song, um, Washington on Your Side, is so well written. And it's one where I think I'm confused by how much kids like the show. And when they say Southern motherfucking Democratic Republicans, I like it. <laughs> and it's a shame that they cut that F word on Disney+.
And this is the first mention of Democratic Republicans, which will hit the ear wrong because we live in a time of Democrats versus Republicans. Of course, at that time, it was largely Federalists versus Democratic Republicans before the Whigs came along and had any say in anything. I took a history class in community college many decades ago where we were supposed to look at Hamilton's arguments and Jefferson's arguments in the cabinet of Washington and decide which one, would figure out which side we'd agreed with. And I remember skimming the list and trying to figure out which one equaled liberal, you know, and so I could agree with that one because I was totally missing the point. Nuance! That's why it's dumb to engage in politics with a good guy, bad guy, Marvel Comics Universe mentality. I just finished reading Dirtbag by Amber Lee Frost, the book that just came out of essays. Uh, she was, uh, she was uh, involved in Occupy Wall Street and also the Bernie campaign. So she's like, and she coined the term the dirtbag left, which I guess is what I'm talking about here. And she talks about how uh, she had a therapist who ended up being a right wing guy that would kept suggesting that she watched PragerU videos. And when she talked about him, she said, like everybody else, he was a little bit right and a little bit wrong. And I think it's a way more helpful way of looking at people. Uh, politics-wise and personal, person-to-person-wise than this idea of us versus them. Uh, right before the song One Last Time, there's this thing that happens in that little scene. Um, and it's something that happens like six times in the show where basically somebody tells somebody something, the other person responds to them, and then that first person clarifies what they had said in the first place. <laughs> that happens here where they say, uh, oh, uh, Jefferson resigned. You're kidding. And then he clarifies, he's stepping down so he can run for president. Oh, good luck defeating you, sir. And then he clarifies further. I'm stepping down. I'm not running for president. This happens with, um, I'm afraid it's unlawful, sir. She's married. Oh, well, she's married to a British officer. Oh, shit. It's like they said one thing. Response, clarification. Also with, uh, oh, here's a letter from Mr. Lawrence. Hey, how's John doing? No. It's from his father. Oh, it's from his father. It's his father telling you he's, his son is dead. I think it happens one too many times in the musical. And this is the one last time that that happens. And it doesn't need to. Far be it for me to edit Lin-Manuel Miranda. He knows what he's doing. And one last time is another example of making an unpatriotic slob like myself get legitimately moved by something like the legacy of George Washington. I don't subscribe to the great man theory of history, but boy, oh boy, when they sing, George Washington's going home, I found myself getting a little choked up. The only part of it I don't like is the idea of uh, they use excerpts from the actual speech. Uh, one of them is speaking it while one of them is singing this. And that's no good as a device. It never works. Will I Am tried that with Obama's Yes, We Can speech. With a whole track. And it's just, yeah, no, yeah, speeches are speeches and songs are songs. Knock it off. But in that speech, Washington did warn against partisan fighting. He was anti-parties. He did not think there should be political parties. And I don't know. It seems like that was inevitable. But boy, was he right about it. The two King George reprises are brilliantly placed as sort of palate cleansers, right? And they come across even better on stage than they do on the album. I like how he puts, uh, there's nobody else in their country that looms quite as large. And he puts uh, finger quotes on country. And this is where the foppishness is at a peak. I wish he did not show up in the next song in the John, uh, yeah, the John Adams rap. Is that what it is? No, no, no. Uh, he shows up in Reynolds' pamphlet. I don't know. He should just be done after that song. 
And they quickly like uh, they glaze over the fact that uh, how does Hamilton, the the protean creator of the Coast Guard, founder of the New York Post, it's like that's all they say about that. And that what the fuck? Like those are two huge things. That's how much uh, the goddamn Hamilton did. That you can glaze over the fact that he founded the New York Post, the nation's oldest newspaper, which is now a fucking basically a tabloid rag. Um, ow, just hit my knee, everybody. The John Adams uh, administration, or the Adams administration, got cut down. There was a John Adams rap after Hamilton publishes his response. And it's a shame that they cut it. I guess the musical was too long. But uh, I have it, some of it committed to memory. And again, I'm not a very good rapper, but I'm going to do some of it for you. An open letter to the fat, arrogant, anti-charismatic, national embarrassment known as President John Adams. Shit. The man's irrationally claims that I'm in league with Britain in some vast international intrigue. Bitch, please. You wouldn't know what I'm doing. You're always going berserk. You never show up for work. Give my regards to Abigail next time you want to talk about my moral compass. At least I do my job up in this rumpus. And then there's like a bunch more. It's really good. They should have kept it in. That's pretty good, wasn't it? Pretend somebody that, you know, isn't me was doing it. And you might appreciate that. Then there is a uh, another musical theater reference where he goes, Sit down, John, you fat motherfucker! That is, of course, a little nod to 1776. And that brings me to a point. Why did anyone think it was a good idea to revive the musical 1776, but this time with women? Jesus Christ, it's just... it's it, Isn't that just a little derivative of what we're doing here with Hamilton? You know, all-female cast of 1776, which isn't a very good musical in the first place. It's kind of boring. And then, you know, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll fix it by having women play the role. And Sondheim, by the way, who was a mentor to Lin-Manuel Miranda, because Sondheim is always helping these young upstart composers. I want to quote him to, uh, because it does relate to what I just said. I'm going to give you the whole quote, even though only the very ending is relevant to the thing I just brought up. Here's what he said in the New York Times after Hamilton came out. Quote, the wonderful thing about Lin-Manuel's use of rap is that he's got one foot in the past. He knows theater. He respects and understands the value of good rhyming, without which the lines tend to flatten out. Jokes don't land the way they should. Even emotional lines don't land the way they should. Rhyme does something to the listener's perception that is very important, and Lin-Manuel recognizes that, which gives the Hamilton score a great deal more heft than it might otherwise have. Most lyrics are by their very nature banal. It's the way they're expressed that makes them sore. Hamilton is a breakthrough, but it doesn't exactly introduce a new era. Nothing introduces an era. What it does is empower people to think differently. There's always got to be an innovator, somebody who experiments first with new forms. The minute something is a success, everybody imitates it. It's what happened with Oklahoma. Everybody immediately started to write bad Western musicals. Hair also had that effect, but eventually people stop imitating and the form matures. Hair allowed young writers to say, hey, let's use rock as a way of telling a story. Now they'll say, let's use rap as a way of telling a story. So we'll certainly see more rap musicals. The next thing we'll get is Lincoln set to rap. If you think I'm kidding, talk to me in a year. End quote. Unquote. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think that's kind of what we're seeing with this revival of 1776 with women of color. But again, it's like even lazier because they didn't even write anything new. They just said, hey, let's capitalize on that thing with this thing. I don't, maybe it was amazing. I don't know. I just, I, I hated the idea of it. But maybe it was so, so good. I don't like the original set. I don't like 1776 with men either. In case you want to call me a chauvinist. Fuck you.
<laughs> when I found out that Lin-Manuel was hanging with Sondheim, I was like, what the fuck? Does he have to be perfect on every level, this, this fucking Lin-Manuel? I have my own private Burr-like relationship with this man, you know? Even And here's another example of that. In the song We Know, uh, which is a little scene song, which is one of my faves, again, um, Hamilton's part where he gets angry. And I heard him talk about this in an interview, Lin-Manuel. He says, uh, he, he's, to he's told the interviewer that he doesn't get angry very often. So it was a challenge for him to write this. And it's like, again, it's like, fuck. I wish I didn't get angry very often. Can Lin-Manuel have one thing wrong with him? In the Freestyle Love Supreme documentary, uh, he seems so fucking nice. Jesus. I saw Freestyle Love Supreme live, not with Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda, but with uh, that guy Two Touch, which is from the original, but then with some new people. I did not like it. I'm not going to lie to you. I did not think it was good. I felt like there was a lot of... Uh, they leaned on a lot of, again, sort of uh, liberal catnip applause lines where it was less about uh, that's impressive that we're uh, coming up with this freestyle rap and more like they kept shoehorning in. We need more women on the damn Supreme Court. And then everyone's like, Woo! and it's like, yes, that's true. But, you know, anyone could have just said that and gotten a round of applause. Um, but yeah, in We Know where Hamilton gets angry with the... She courted me, escorted me to bed, and when she had me in her corner, that's when Reynolds extorted me for a sordid fee. I paid him quarterly. I may have mortally wounded my prospects, but my papers are orderly. As you can see, I kept a record of every check in my checkered history. Check it again against your list and see consistently. <laughs> Consistency. I'm not a rapper. I never spent a cent that wasn't mine. You sent the dogs after my cent? That's fine. There's a theory, by the way, this whole Reynolds affair. Um... Because uh, we all know what happened. He had an affair with Mariah Reynolds and Mariah's husband was extorting him. And then his political rivals thought that he was doing a shady financial scam. But then he said, no, this is where those checks went. It was to pay off this guy. And then in order to, I guess, save his good name in some one way or another, he wrote a pamphlet talking about how he fucked this woman. And then he could never be a president because he fucked a woman, which apparently is against the law. Someone that's not your wife. Uh, in my little research here, my little Wikipedia historianism, um, there was a theory that the Reynolds affair may have never happened and actually was used to cover up an actual financial scandal that Hamilton was doing. And uh, future president James Monroe was uh, more involved in this than, well, James Monroe doesn't even really get mentioned in this. But he suggested that that may have been the case here, that this was a financial scandal covered up. You know who else suggested this? Fucking Mariah Reynolds, the actual woman. She denied any of this happened. She said, this is probably just his financial scandal that he's covering up by saying it was to fuck me. And the only evidence of any of this is the pamphlet written by Hamilton himself. He never produced any manuscript copies of the letters from Mariah. The newspapers asked for them, as did Mariah Reynolds. And his response to that was, oh, uh, I gave them to a friend. I don't have them anymore. <laughs> and then that friend said that he never saw them. And in the letters that he quotes in the pamphlets, like the letters from her, uh, she spells long, complex words correctly, but then misspells simple words. And a lot of people said it looked like an educated man's idea of what an uneducated lady's love letters would look like. And then, whoops, no evidence on Eliza Hamilton's side because she burned all of her letters from him and to him. Spoiler alert. Also, in real life, it was three other dudes that confronted him. Uh, it was James Monroe, Abraham Venable, and Frederick Mullenberg, not Burr Jefferson and Madison. But, you know, streamlined for the sake of storytelling, which is fine. Also, somebody else leaked this info 
uh, in their own pamphlet before Hamilton. It wasn't Hamilton grabbing the bull by their horns and getting ahead of the story necessarily. Like the story got leaked uh, and they gave in the story were some of the documents that Hamilton had given to the Monroe Commission. And that pissed off Hamilton so much he confronted James Monroe. Monroe denied the leak and Hamilton challenged him to a duel. And who intervened and stopped that duel? Aaron fucking Burr. He was like, guys, calm down. And then there was no duel. And since Hamilton is so shitty at having duels, it's a, uh, you know, good thing he'd, you know, he, he would have died a little sooner had that not happened. So Burr kind of saved his life, but then took it later. So uh, the song Hurricane, uh, God, it could be so much better with a better actor. I'm sorry. Lin-Manuel, I know he wrote it, but yeah. It's one of my favorite staging devices, the way that the hurricane happens all around him, the furniture moving around all slow. And the whole idea of writing his way out. He says, the, uh, I'll write my way out, write everything down. Um, this is a little embarrassing. I used to say this to myself um, in 2018, 2019, when I was in a dead-end job working for an after-school program for years and years in an administrative capacity. I was like, uh, I, I, I'll write my way out. I'll write uh, amazing songs, and then that will uh, free me from this job. But, uh, you know, before that happened, the world pandemic took me out of that situation. <sighs> then uh, the Reynolds pamphlet has that whole refrain, he's never gonna be president now, never gonna be president now. Uh, I think a lot of people want to forget this, but uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was on SNL, hosted SNL right before the 2016 election. Between the uh, release of the Access Hollywood tape with Billy Bush, where Trump said, grab him by the pussy, and the election itself, he was on SNL. And I guess they made reference to this, where he said that about Trump because of the tape. Never going to be president now. I'm sure that people want that erased from history because, uh, boy, oh boy, is the egg on your face now because he became president. The song is a bummer, but uh, I guess it's supposed to be. The way the crowd goes, boo. It's, it's just so smart. It's just so good. Angelica's section in this I find confusing because she's, you know, pissed off at him or whatever. And there was a longer song called Congratulations that got cut down, but it went into more detail. Um, but she says, put what we had aside. I'm standing at her side. What did they have? I don't really understand the uh, relationship between Hamilton and Eliza. I mean, sorry, Angelica. I don't get it. There's even an alternate version of Burn where Eliza says something to the effect of, uh, don't think I don't see the way you look at my sister. And I guess the, it confuses me. Uh, I mean, I know it was different in real life than it was in the play, but are they suggesting that Hamilton and Eliza and Angelica had a secret side thing? Because Hamilton almost achieves the uh, rapscallion porno ideal of having a thruple with his, some sisters. <laughs> How awful is that, by the way, that that's somebody's fantasy? Like, are you that self-centered that, like, you you want to have sex with sisters so you would put actual sisters through the trauma of having sex with their sister? Anyway, it's a whole other can of worms. Oh, guess what? It's the first time I do have to call the lyrics police to the scene. Officers! <coughs> Thank you. Do you, uh, so, so the, the line in Burn, she sings, uh, Do you know what Angelica said when she read what you've done? She said, you've married an Icarus. He's flown too close to the sun. Kind of obvious there that we're going to say sun. Flown too close to the sun. When you said done and then you said Icarus, we all know what's coming. 
And at the end of that song, she decides to erase herself from the narrative by burning the letters. And that is part of the overall storytelling here, is that all of the characters are highly history conscious. Um, I'm not sure that that is how they were in real life. I know that they probably thought, right, that, okay, big things are happening. <laughs> There's a new country here that we're starting. But did they all really, like, think the whole time that everything they're doing is going to echo into history and it's very important to think about history while they're doing it and that history has its eyes on you? Or were they just in, focused on the task at hand? I don't know. I didn't read their letters. I don't have that kind of time. I feel like Hamilton should be on stage while she sings Burn. It's weird that she's singing it to nobody. Uh, that's my note for Thomas Kale. He really needs my help with this. Uh, Blow Us All Away. It's a fun little Cena, funny song. Unless you know what's going to happen at the end, then it's very ominous. You're like, oh God, I, I can't watch. Let me go on a little rant here. Hamilton's fucking dual technique. Is he an idiot? He tells his son, to, uh, when the time comes, aim your pistol in the air. That'll put an end to the whole affair. It gets his son fucking killed. And then it gets him fucking killed. It was stupid in the first place. And then he didn't learn from the traumatic, untimely death of his son. Then he does it again. Is he a moron? This isn't talked about enough. Um, the death of Philip is rough, man. The heartbeat, the heartbeat percussion too. How the, the just a very sort of low deep 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 on the on the kick drum or whatever, and then when he dies, it stops. Uh, Chris in his forties who cries at everything cannot handle this scene. Um, you know Eliza's scream when the son dies. He, he I can't handle it. Um, the song gets quiet uptown. You know, it's another case where I wish Lin Manuel was a better actor. He's doing his constricted voice, almost crying thing here. I will say that this song grew on me. Like I see, I, I I always saw the utility in it, the fact that Hamilton is aging and his career has hit the skids and he's endured a tragedy so large that things in his life need to slow down, and he moves uptown and it's quiet uptown and there's a numbness to that song, and it's a long song. I guess I realize now that it needs to be. I, I don't love the repetition of the unimaginable. But, um, yeah, I guess it's important pacing-wise. I always appreciated it in a movie or a play uh, where if somebody loses a child, they don't just squirt out a couple of tears and move on. It seems like the death of a child is such a calamity and a trauma that it deserves... You know, like Sean Penn and Mystic River is so good because of that. But those are my daughter there. That's the best. That's hard to sit through too, man. Older, older I get. Hard to watch that scene. I've seen Mystic River many times. I love Mystic River. Anyway, I think if Lin Manuel were a better actor, it would have more punch. Also, I think that all of all the songs in the show, this one would be great in a movie musical version because it's a montage, and there's a lot of montages in it. But it's it's one that needs to take its time. And I think it feels more cinematic than the ones that are uh, sort of run uh, on a motor, like the ones in the war. When she takes his hand and forgives him, yeah, again, you know, Chris in his 40s cries again. It's, uh, it's a lot, guys. The election of 1800s. I do like it. <laughs> I like all of it, guys. I like Hamilton. When Burr says, uh, it's 1800, ladies, tell your husbands, vote for Burr. It's a little reminder of where we are here. <laughs> it's only the landowning men are allowed to vote. The ladies have to tell their husbands to vote. 
And of course they say, he seems approachable, like you could grab a beer with him. And that's a clear uh, year 2000 reference, uh, Bush. You know, I, if you were around in the year 2000, you remember that nobody would shut the fuck up about wanting to grab a beer with George W. Bush. And that's why he became our president and, and destroyed everything, because Al Gore was a dork with a fat ass that nobody wanted to vote for. But W was like, hey, how's it going? You guys want to play some golf, do some grilling? And we were all like, hey, that's fun. Um, there's a really interesting subtlety to Aaron Burr in this scene, in the election, because he's kind of losing it, even before all the drama with the endorsement. He's seen, like when he's uh, campaigning door to door, he's like, I'm going after what I want. You know what? I learned that from you. He seems manic in a way that we haven't seen him be like that before. And they did cut a reprise of Dear Theodosia, where it's a letter, I guess, that he's writing to his daughter saying that uh, Theodosia, the mother, has died. And he loses it in that song. He cries his fucking eyes out. And, uh, you know, again, I d that adds even more resonance to later in the show, uh, the very end of uh, ending for Burr. But I think the original Dear Theodosia does enough work on that that we don't need the reprise. So it's, you know, it's an okay cut, I think. Uh, one part, every show sung through musical that it reprises themes a lot. Um, there's always like one little part in it that's like, that doesn't get reprised ever, but boy, is that interesting. And I think here it's that when the ensemble is going, Jefferson or Bird, we know it's lose, lose, Jefferson or Bird, and Bird, but if you had to choose, dear Mr. Hamilton, your fellow Federalists would like to know who you're promoting. Uh, I really like that part and it stands alone. Um, it's a dumb rule that the runner-up gets to be the vice president. I agree with uh, Madison. That was stupid. These are the genius founding fathers. I guess the point is that the vice president doesn't matter. Still doesn't. Um, some interesting context. In real life, yes, Hamilton was anti-Burr in that election, and he did endorse um, Jefferson, who was his enemy prior to this. And he specifically disliked Burr at this point because of some complicated bank-related reasons. But actually, so Burr was the vice president for the first Jefferson term. They didn't uh, kick him out until the second term. But Jefferson never trusted Burr, and he shut him out of all the important matters. And then, yeah, replaced him in the second term. After which, Burr ran for governor of New York, and then Hamilton got in and smeared him again. He wrote that he was a dangerous man and one who ought not to be trusted with the reins of government. And so the musical makes it makes it seem like Hamilton's just trying to live this quiet life uptown, but everybody forced him to comment on that election. And then he's like, well, if you're going to make me say something, I'm going to tell the truth. But like in real life, Hamilton is dead set on kneecapping this motherfucker at every turn. He is <laughs> fucking over Burr, like intentionally and relentlessly. I've never read the novel Burr by Gore Vidal, but I would like to. It's on my long list of books I want to read and never will. The song, Your Obedient Servant, that thing where they, I have the honor to be. It's less funny the third time. And I almost have to call the lyrics police in on another case of a predictable rhyme, but then it, they divert it slightly. Um, now you call me moral, a dangerous disgrace. If you have something to say, uh-oh, they're going to say, say it to my face. But then they say, name a time and place face to face. So it's like, okay, he didn't... Uh, he didn't take the path of least resistance there. He made it a little more interesting than it could have been. The final song, The World Was Wide Enough. I feel like this song, 
belongs to Burr and Burr's performance or, you know, the way that the, his story arc and the way that uh, he experiences this event of the duel with Hamilton. Uh, that's the most interesting part of the end of the show. I don't give a shit about Hamilton's pre-death acapella rap. Uh, but the way that Burr narrates that story and his panic and his crying uh, wearing his glasses. Why? If not to take deadly aim. It's him or me. And then um, when he sort of yells through tears, I had only one thought before the slaughter. This man will not make an orphan of my daughter. That's why we needed dear Theodosia. Because it's, you know, and that's why we need, we need, we needed it for Hamilton because then the death of Philip is not just like, okay, somebody lost another child to the, perilous life of the 18th century but no or in 19th century but no it's uh you know this uh, you will not make i just lost my wife you will not make an orphan of my daughter this little girl that's so important to me um and you feel for him it it, it sends a chill down your spine fun fact burr was never actually charged with hamilton's murder because of some weird complicated shit where they were they charged him they tried to charge him in both New York and New Jersey but it got all complicated because Hamilton was shot in New Jersey and then died in New York so they never successfully charged him he avoided both he avoided visiting both states until the charges were dropped and then he just went on living <laughs> he went out to the frontier and he leased some land for, for, during the fucking Louisiana purchase he ended up getting arraigned for treason because he did some secret correspondence with the British and the Spanish, uh, did something treasonous. He got exiled to Europe, and then he came back with a different name. He got remarried, and get this, he, he quickly was divorced from this new wife, and his wife's divorce lawyer was Alexander Hamilton Jr. And then right after that divorce, he had a stroke and he died in Staten Island, 1836. It's crazy postscript on that, huh? So yeah, Burr kind of emerges as my favorite character. Now, uh, revisiting the show for this podcast, I love Burr. Uh, and one thing that should be mentioned, um, Utkarsh Ambudkar, and I could be mispronouncing that one. He's from the original Freestyle Love Supreme, and uh, I feel like you probably know him if you see him. He's in a lot of things now. He was in that movie, Brittany Runs a Marathon. I like that movie a lot. He was like the love interest in that. Uh, he was originally cast as Burr, and there's this whole sad story about that in the Freestyle Love Supreme documentary, where, yeah, he was his friend, and he was friends with these guys, and they were doing the original Hamilton before it went to Broadway, and he was, like, fucking up and not showing up to rehearsal, and apparently it's because he had a drinking problem. And so they fired him, and now and they cast Leslie Odom Jr., and the rest is history. And so he says, you know, if anyone, he's sober now, and he says, if anybody ever says to me, like, hey, how come you don't drink? He's like, well, let me tell you about a little thing called Hamilton the Musical. I missed out. He's like Pete Best of the Beatles. Um, so, yeah, that's a fucked up story, isn't it? Poor guy. So now uh, we're at the end here. This is a long episode about only one musical, but it's Hamilton, so it deserves it. Uh, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? The closing number. Now, this number has a lot of emotional weight, but I think... My big gripe is that there's a missed opportunity here because it wraps up the show as a sentimental canonization of Alexander Hamilton. And it's this idea that Hamilton didn't get his due like the other founding fathers, and he's this big hero. 
I think the musical, Hamilton, is at its best as an anti-hero story. And unfortunately, I've talked about this exhaustively on this podcast, and it's just my opinion. There's a dumb idea that musicals have to be life-affirming, and that they have to culminate in an ending that is sentimental and, and moving and makes us feel good about going back into the world. But we don't expect that of any other medium or art form. Movies are allowed to have uh, melancholy endings or complicated endings or sad endings or bad endings or, you know, and straight plays are too, you know? Chinatown is allowed to, you're allowed to say, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. And it could be a story about the, a cynical story about how you should never try to do anything. You can't do that in a musical. And I don't understand who makes those fucking rules. Like, I don't disagree i don't agree that the man hamilton deserves this the canonization because like everybody else uh, to quote amber lee frost like i said he was a little bit right and a little bit wrong maybe he didn't get the credit he deserved in relation to the other so-called founding fathers at least before 2015 but i mean now he does but i mean before that he was on the fucking ten dollar bill nobody really likes ten dollar bills though do they i hate it when i have ten dollar bills i only like it when i have i only want to have a ten dollar bill if i also have a 50 because then I can count it along with my 20s as a, in the terms of a 20. <laughs> and then the show ends. And then that's the end of Hamilton. Though there's that gasp at the end that we learned about um, when we saw it on Disney+. Plus. And then generations debated, why does Eliza gasp at the end? Um, and a lot of people think it's because she's dying and she's seeing Hamilton again in the afterlife. Which I think is a pretty good theory. So, debate over. That's why she gasps. Anyway, in closing... Hamilton is a great show. It carried a lot of musical haters over the line into becoming musical lovers. And not just Hamilton lovers. I think that this people that saw Hamilton that were didn't like musicals saw Hamilton. And then I think a lot of them, and I know them personally. I know this is true. They ended up uh, investigating other musicals and now they like them. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do here on I Need You to Like Musicals. So thank you, Hamilton. And... Lin-Manuel Miranda, thank you, specifically. Now, please write some more musical theater for the Broadway stage and get out of your Disney contract. You're an artist. Disney is an evil regime. Fuck Disney. And Happy New Year. The end. Here's a closing quote for you. Uh, I need you to like musicals is going home. I need you to like musicals is going home. I need you to like musicals is going home, sir. We've been talking about Hamilton for so long. Ha! Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Happy New Year to you. And I'll see you in season two of I Need You to Like Musicals.